Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Just a box of fluffy ducks, by God. How in the hell are you? Uh, well, I'm doing better than you are. Bruce has been under the weather this week. Bruce, what happened? Well, I think I got a little bit of Conrad's revenge. Uh... You got a little sick in Houston, and I had a dinner at a suspect place at best the other night, and in the middle of the night, uh, they got their revenge on me. Yeah, food poisoning is real. I, I think I might start laying off of seafood during the winter. That may be like my new thing, because uh, it did not agree with me in Houston. But there is a guarantee that you're going to enjoy next week's episode. We're going to be talking about Edge. He was a runaway winner in our poll. And uh, you can be sure to ask your questions and participate in that show by going over to Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. You'll see a post up around the same time this podcast comes out with an image of Edge. And uh, we're going to ask you for your questions. You'll have several days to get those questions in for Edge. And then the following week, well, we've got a whole new set of poll topics here. So while you're at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle, you can vote on next week's show. So as a reminder... Edge is going to come out on the 15th. On the 22nd, here's what we might talk about. Are you ready, Bruce? No, I'm ready. Poll topic number one, maybe uh, the one I've wanted to do most of all for a long time now, China. What might we talk about if China wins the poll? China. Uh, that's what somebody used to call her before. Uh, China, we're going to talk about her induction into... The wrestling business and how she was discovered and her up and down career all the way through, uh, starting out with Triple H through DX, working with Eddie Guerrero, and um, I, I even have the story of her one and only appearance at uh, TNA as well. So we'll cover all things China in the WWF and TNA. We should also mention poll topic number two, one of our most requested topics. He's been around for more than 20 years now. One of the most iconic characters in WWE history, Goldust. What might we talk about if Goldust wins the poll? Well, iconic and controversial are absolutely the two names or the two descriptors that go with Dustin Rhodes and Goldust. We're going to talk about how that character really came about. Who chose the name? Why the name? Why the mannerisms and everything that there is about Goldust from the very beginning, the controversy with Razor Ramon, the backlot brawl with Roddy Piper, and all the way through the stuff with Ahmed Johnson to when he kind of fizzled out, the rumor and innuendo, did Goldust really want to get breast enhancements? Um, we'll talk about everything, Goldust and Dustin Runnels. 
if gold dust wins. Poll topic number three, one of our most requested topics, and uh, this might be the first or the second time he's on the poll, but he hasn't been up a lot, but he's up this time. It's the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. What might we talk about if Davy Boy wins the poll? Well, we'll cover a little bit of the time with Davy Boy and the British Bulldogs teaming with the Dynamite Kid. But uh, we'll focus a lot on Bulldogs' single run in the WWF and the controversial time when he was let go by the WWF. We'll talk about the phone call that we got in Boca Raton, Florida, that caused that termination to take place. Bulldog coming back and all the way through the untimely and unfortunate death of David Smith. Last but certainly not least, one of my favorites as a kid, uh, and I'm pulling for him, the Big Boss Man. Poll topic number four, what might we talk about if Boss Man wins the poll? If you ever take a trip down to Cobb County, Georgia, you better walk toe the line. Something like that. He's the boss man. Big boss man. Big Ray Trailer. Uh, we'll talk about that interview with Ray Trailer and Pat Patterson and Vince McMahon and how the big boss man was born. The original vignettes of the big boss man in the jail up in Connecticut and then the vignettes that took place for the turn of the big boss man in Cobb County, Georgia. Some absolutely hilarious stories centered around that. Um, just the rise and the fall of the big boss man and what a great human being the Ray Trailer was. So there you go. Go vote in the poll right now. It's at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Let's remind you, it's going to be China, it's going to be Goldust, it's going to be Bulldog, or it's going to be Boss Man. And let me remind you, Bruce and I are not picking the shows. So if you were hoping this week to hear about the Rockers or the Legion of Doom or the Hart Foundation, and instead you're listening to the Steiners, or maybe next week you hope to hear about Booker T or Randy Orton or Rob Van Dam, you can change this, guys. Go on over. Vote right now. It's Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. We're going to give you what you want to hear. Isn't that right, Bruce? Yes, we are. We are going to give you gold dust, which will be the best one and the one that I'm looking forward to. So, folks, vote. The only way we can get gold dust show done, and you guys have requested it so many times, vote at Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Vote gold dust. Uh, let me, well, I'm actually pulling for China or boss man. Um, I also want to mention the deuce with Bruce has really caught on and Bruce is showing some really cool stuff. Of course, this is an audio experience for you here on the podcast, but Bruce has so much cool memorabilia and so many cool, uh, things in his office, old pictures, old booking sheets, stuff like that. You don't want to miss this. And I would encourage you to just check a few of them out. They're two or three minutes long each. And uh, check a few of these out. See if you like it. If you don't, don't throw us a like if we didn't deserve it. Uh, but you'll be able to ask questions about the show. You'll be able to vote in the poll. And you get the morning deuce with Bruce. And it all happens at Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Uh, Bruce, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about, and we haven't talked about this off air, uh, the WWE officially parted ways with one of the more iconic characters or figures in WWE history, at least from the fans' perspective. The guy who did the iconic themes of the 80s that we all love so much, you just sort of broke into song for the boss man there a few minutes ago. Jim Johnston is gone. Um, what can you tell us about your time with him, the creative process, the relationship he had with creative or Vince, how some of these themes came together, 
Uh, we get requests for this all the time. I'm not sure that we could do a full two-hour show on it, but I would love to hear whatever you can offer right now as a brief snippet. Jim Johnston is as close as you're going to get to like a music savant. Jim was able to just pull tunes out of his head on the fly. Uh, he was a friend of Vince McMahon's. He and Vince were very close. When I first met Jim Johnston, he was working in the basement of a church in Greenwich, Connecticut. That was his studio because the acoustics were just so damn good. And they had a, um, it's like a Catholic school up on top. So you had all that going on. Jim did all of his music down there in the basement. We used to have to go over there to listen to whatever he came up with at the time. But Jim probably produced 90 to, well, probably 95, 98% of all of the music for the WWF back in the day. At least he had a hand in it. He worked with whatever, uh, like he worked with Rick Derringer and he worked with Jimmy Hart and different people to produce all those themes that we all know and love. What sort of notes would a Vince McMahon give a Jim about what he was thinking for this character? Would he, would, would Vince sort of put, point him in a certain direction or was it just left up to Jim to take a look at the presentation and figure out what the sound should be? Both, actually. We would do, take it from, here, here's who the character is. Now, here is, here is the Undertaker. He's dark and he's ominous. He's going to be managed by Brother Love. So we want a little bit of, uh, that feel to it as well. But Jim would watch, or well, not always watch, because we would need his music, but he would take a look at the character. He would take a look at the drawings. Sometimes he would meet with the talent to find out how they saw themselves. And then he would take the first blush, and then we would all kind of tear it up from there, which could be an extremely brutal process. Jim just would would look at things. Sometimes Jim would write things and give it to us and go, Hey, I wrote this. I really like it. I think it would make a great entrance for somebody. And we would listen to it and go, Hey, that'd be good for the Sandman. That'd be good for uh, whoever that we had planned down the line. A couple follow-up questions. You said sometimes he would give you stuff and the feedback would be brutal. The process would be brutal. Do you remember one in particular um, that you got and there was just it was just not anything what Vince wanted? The Lex Luger theme. The the Lex Luger two both Lex Luger themes actually. The the American Lex Luger theme and the uh, the hero song, the original cut of the hero song that everybody remembers. I want a hero or whatever that was. Um, I was told that I made Jim cry. You, you, you made him cry? <laughs> yes, with my critique of his work because it was brutal and i told him god that is the worst piece of shit i have ever heard in my life i mean i wouldn't i would rather listen to nothing than listen to that if that was the only thing left on am radio <laughs> and it was all i had um what the what the fuck are you smoking i mean he left and he got so upset he wanted to quit then um and of course i apologize i was I was kidding. I'm being, but I was serious because it was horrible. But Jim was a very sensitive guy, like some artists are. 
extremely talented, uh, an incredible work ethic. He would, he would sit in that studio 20 hours at a time until he got it right, until he got what he wanted. And he would send it over and Vince would listen to it. I need bigger horns. God, come on, give me, I want to bump, 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 bump. And just, uh, kind of hum it through the phone, if you will. Do you remember? Jim, go ahead. Nah, Jim would go back, man, and, and, and he would, he would sit there and you'd watch him and he'd get on that, you know, like that organ and, and go, you know, bump, 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 bump. <laughs> and he would do Vince and he would be on the organ and just kind of trying to recreate exactly the direction he was just given. Can you remember any instance where he sent a theme like you described earlier where he said, Hey, I just made this for somebody and then you guys heard it. And realized, oh, that would be great for so and so. Can you think of a real example? I uh, the original original uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, when he was Ringmaster Steve Austin, we had a character for years that we called the Sandman. That was just a a smooth, really really smooth worker in the ring. And Goldust was somebody we were thinking about for the Sandman gimmick, and. We also had a character, the ringmaster, that we we just we had a character in our mind, and we're looking for a guy to play it. That was one instance where we had those characters in our head. Steve Austin came in, and and it was kind of the same thing. Was it going to be the Sandman? Is it going to be the ringmaster? Obviously, we went with the ringmaster. Steve's original music was music that we had already had in our head from something that Jim had presented that we really liked. Said, "Hey, man, that that could be the ringmaster." And kept it, you know, you kind of file it away. Sometimes Jim would write things. Um, Jim scored the damn show. You know, he would go back and put music under things and he would score things and he would come up with tunes during that that we would love and say, Hey, we could use that for entrance music down the line. Um, when we're talking about entrance music, what was the typical turn time? Like, could you meet with Jim and say, Hey, we really, want to debut so-and-so on this date and then the music be back? I mean, is this a a one day, a one week, a one month? What's the timetable that Jim's working with by and large? Sometimes it's we, – we tried to give him a week so that we could play with it back and forth. If – try to give him as much time as, as we could because you want to get the very best product, and we wanted to have time to kind of – Listen to it, let it sink in, give him feedback and get it just right. So, and that would, that process would take a week. But once, once he had something and once he delivered something for the first time, that was his project and he was going to get it right. So once you kind of went back and forth, that process probably took four or five days, depending upon Vince's availability to listen to it. And in later years, that went to uh, Kevin Dunn, who he would submit it to Kevin, and then Kevin would take it to Vince and just kind of tighten that process up a lot. Um, thinking about, you know, when you were there towards the end, was uh, was Jim still in the basement? Is that where he was making the, the music, or was he doing it at his home studio? No, they built a big, beautiful studio for Jim at the television studio at 120 Hamilton. And I'm trying to think when Jim moved in there. That would have been around 19, 
98, maybe 97, 98. What? Okay. I, I can almost, uh, pinpoint it. De- uh, Nation of Domination. That's 97. Then that was about the time that Jim's studio, uh, came in and that's where we got everybody, all the guys in the studio. Uh, I need all male voices. And we all go into Jim's studio and say, Nation of Domination. Nation of Domination. I'm yeah. on that. See, I sing on that. Do you really? Yeah, I really do. I'm on that. You know, um, I mean, this late 96, early 97 is, is probably when he moved in then. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the weird situation with royalties and all that that exists in music because so many of us watch old wrestling on the network and we're not able to hear the original theme song because there's, uh, you know, everybody has a hand in how the the rights to the the music is going to be shaken out. So what is this going to look like now that Jim is gone? Is is Jim, do you imagine that he signed over all that a long time ago? Is he going to still be paid for that moving forward? I know you're not there. I know you don't know exactly, but can you freestyle a guess as to what the nature of that relationship might be looking forward? I mean, a few years from now, are all the songs we grew up on not going to be there? Well, that may happen because I two things. I couldn't see Jim signing all that over and I couldn't see WWE continuing to pay that much for all those rights. Now, a lot of that goes into Stephanie music, but it's going to be very interesting. But then again, you know what? Jim may have just said, ah, pay me, you know, do a buyout, pay me a bunch now and I'll, I'll go away. You said Stephanie Music there, and I know we've talked about it before, but somebody heard that and didn't know what you meant. Explain what Stephanie Music is. Stephanie Music was the company that we ran all of the music from. It was it was just another company within the company that produced all of the music. There was uh, Shane Films and Stephanie Music. The idea of watching the network a few years from now and the iconic theme songs that we grew up on not being there is... <sighs> the worst possible scenario. I really hope that's not the case. You know, I know me and you've talked about this off air and there's no chance you're going to give the same answer here now, but freestyle, I guess how much you think Jim Johnson made over his WWE career. Millions. I mean, I think that's lost on a lot of people who were really upset when they saw that he had been released, but the word I got was that he wasn't doing the majority of the entrance themes any longer anyway. He was working more with WWE films. Would you believe that to be true? Yes. And at the yeah. same time, so if he's not really doing that anymore, and you know, it's not like you're necessarily going to miss it. But along the way, <laughs> the dude made a pile of cash, like probably one of the most well-paid employees for that I mean, I think you could probably argue he made as much or more than anybody else who's been there that entire time. Yes, without a doubt. And he wasn't always an employee. He was always an independent contractor. I don't think that they brought him on until the late 90s. So that really does raise some interesting questions about, you know, the Ultimate Warrior theme and so many of those other ones that we really dig. If you had to sort of pick some of your favorites, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here and we didn't discuss this, so you'll probably leave some out. Could you name a handful of your favorite themes that he put together over the years? Jake the Snake theme, uh, my theme, the Brother Love theme, Undertaker, the different variations of that. 
the Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, the Rock. Uh, those are, you know, the big ones that, that come up right off the top of my head. Uh, I think Cena, I think he did Cena's as well. Going back, um, the Hart Foundation. Did he do anything with demolitions? I think demolition was Rick Derringer. Yeah. But I knew that he, he had worked with Derringer, so I wasn't sure if he was involved in that process at all. But I'm with you on the Jake the Snake. That's one of my absolute favorites. Of course, I think the Ultimate Warriors music is just unbelievable. And it's funny mm. to think about just the presentation of these characters and how much I associate them with the music. Like, the Ultimate Warrior coming out to any other music is not the Ultimate Warrior. No. And, and to this day, you can play the first three seconds of Ultimate Warrior, and you'll have every ass in the seat out of their seats. To this day. You know, it's a little thing, and I know that, you know, lots of other things went wrong, too, but... When the Ultimate Warrior debuted for WCW and he didn't have that music, it wasn't the same. No, because that was so frenetic and so much a part of who he was. But, you know, as you said, the Jake the Snake theme, and there's just so many. Like, I can't imagine Stone Cold coming out to something different. You know, there's that's what I associate it with. And it's a shame that he's gone, but he's been doing something else for a long time anyway. But I'm not going to cry for him knowing that he has done very, very well financially I just really, really hope that we don't, and we're not saying this is going to happen. We're just freestyling. You know, a lot of those old wrestling themes are not there on the network because they couldn't work the money out. And I hope that's not what this is headed for because the network will not be the same if all those themes are gone. Uh, It will remove the identity, especially after, look look at it, it's been 30 plus years. Some of those iconic Music entrances that you you can watch it with your eyes closed and you know who's coming out and you know what's happening. Yep. So you take that away and music is such an important part of everything that they do. I hope they, you know, I have no idea, I have zero knowledge of anything. I haven't talked to Jim or anybody else up there about it, but I do know that Jim's a reasonable guy and that Vince likes Jim a lot. And it was probably just time that, they realized, hey, for what his contract was and what he was doing, the, the contract was based on something else a while ago. It's time to change this up. And Jim probably said, eh, okay, I'll go do something else. I just really hope that uh, they work that out because, man, the network is going to suck. So hopefully you're listening, WWE. We know you are. Pay this man. Don't let them ruin our network. And uh, we hope that you are enjoying what we're doing uh, on the show here, and uh, we hope that you're going to go ahead and hit the subscribe button and tell your friends. And I guess now is as good a time as any, Bruce. We should announce that this entire time there has not been an official way to listen to the show on YouTube. So if you've been listening to our show on YouTube before today, which is uh, December 8th, you have been listening to an unauthorized bootleg stolen version of the show where Bruce and I did not participate and you were not supporting the show, I get dozens of messages every single day. Where did your YouTube channel go? And it's like, dude, we didn't have one. But, uh, Bruce, you cowardly lion with your yawn, we have a YouTube channel now. That's amazing. An official YouTube channel. How do they, how do they go do that, Conrad? Well, here's the deal. Go to youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. That's youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. 
We're going to upload, I believe now, all of the episodes are up there in their entirety. But you can also click around and see some clips. We're going to start breaking out into little clips, and it'll be easy for you to search. Hey, when did they talk about so-and-so? It'll be there. Uh, and as we continue to get some of these timestamps in from volunteers, we'll start adding those there as well so you can sort of skip around. And if you're interested in helping participate with the timestamps, by all means, help us out, do some timestamps, send them on uh, on my DM. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. He is at Bruce Pritchard. And we would love to have your support for our YouTube channel. So go hit the subscribe button, and uh, eventually we'll find a way to throw you some exclusive content on there as well. It's youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. If you're listening to this anywhere other than something to wrestle.com, one of your fancy schmancy podcast apps, or youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle, you're not listening to it the right way. Please support the show and listen to it through one of those channels. It's the only way to support the show. All right, Bruce, it's time. What everybody's here for, what happened when the Steiner Brothers came to the World Wrestling Federation? And, of course, we're going to talk about Big Papa Pump. Holler if you hear me. Uh, i got to tell you, Bruce, I'm not even going to pretend to not be biased here. The Steiner Brothers were my favorite tag team as a kid. It was these guys, a demolition. I miss some of the early Road Warrior stuff that I've grown to appreciate later. But when I was a kid, man, these guys were the deal. Yeah, I was so happy because I knew Rob Recksteiner before, uh, obviously I ever met Scott when Robbie first started in the Mid-South area with Sting and Eddie Gilbert and all those guys. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back. And they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam, you're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. With paintyourlife.com, that can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there. You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 
20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Absolutely tremendous talent, very young, very green, very stiff, and was still finding his way in the wrestling business. But he was such a damn good guy. We we had the tag team with uh, Rob Recksteiner and Sting as a team with Eddie Gilbert trying to coach them along, and they both had so much potential that you wanted the very best for both of them. So when obviously Sting went on to be who he became, and Rob went on his single career. It was maybe not as meteoric as Sting was, but there was always something there. And the addition of his brother Scott, I think, made them a, an attraction that was very hard to beat. Well, let's talk about the beginning here. Um, of course, they come over in December of 1992. And uh, as you said, they're already a worldwide known tag team because of their run in WCW. Two-time WCW tag team champions at that point, the United States tag team champions as well. And I think once they even held both of those straps at the exact same time. Uh, they both had singles runs as television champions. And in fact, uh, Scott vacated the TV title when they wind up just sort of abruptly leaving for the WWF. Prior to coming in, too, they were the IWGP tag champions. So... Bruce, that's pretty rare air to be a WCW tag champ and an IWGP tag champ. Am I right? I I guess so. Dave Meltzer would probably think it was. <laughs> but they, you know, WCW had a, a great relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling. And New Japan, they loved that style, the really stiff style of wrestlers. And the Steiners fit perfectly for New Japan. We should mention that before they ever got into wrestling, these guys were both very accomplished amateur wrestlers in high school and at the University of Michigan. You probably knew that from their entrance jackets. Uh, And it's interesting because Scott Steiner, known as Big Papa Pump for his big-as-a-house physique, he wrestled at 190 pounds in Michigan. Uh, He was a three-time Big Ten runner-up, and in 86, he was a Division I All-American. And then in college, Rick placed second in the Big Ten Championships in 83, and then scored two of the fastest pins in Michigan's history in 14 or 15 seconds. Uh, he went on to get a uh, bachelor's degree in education. And uh, I find that kind of funny because this is a guy who runs around as the dog-faced gremlin, and he's barking. He's actually got a college degree in teaching. So kind of an interesting man, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, a real smart guy and a really, really good human being. Of course, these days, we should mention uh, he is a realtor in the suburbs of Atlanta, and uh, I believe he's on a school board, given some of the shenanigans that those guys pulled over the years. That's kind of interesting. These are some <laughs> badass dudes, though. They were introduced to the professional wrestling graps by George Steele. And um, Rick, of course, becomes a pro wrestler first. In 1986, he comes in using his shoot name, which is Rob Recksteiner. 
and uh, seemingly breaks his last name apart and becomes Rick Steiner. He spends a little bit of time in the AWA and then makes his way to the UWF, and that's where he starts to gain some success, believe it or not, with Sting. Uh, the UWF is then bought out by Jim Crockett, and Rick, along with Sting and other talent, move over to the NWA. How much time did you spend with Rick in the UWF? Um, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull a Ric Flair here on you and I will probably call Rick Rob throughout this whole thing because when he came in, he was Rob Recksteiner. That's where I got to know him. And at some point in, in his time in the EWF, Bill Watts just decided he was going to call him Rick Steiner because it was easier. And it was, it was just that transformation, but we all always called him Rob. So man, he was. A sponge. So when Rob came in, he just wanted to learn. He was a sponge. He was a really, really fun-loving guy, good guy. Had the opportunity to just hang out with him a bit. I'll tell you a, a quick story here. We were in Perry. No, no, not it wasn't Perry. That was Texas. In Jennings, Louisiana. We had a spot show in Jennings, Louisiana that drew... Maybe 75 people. Oh, my. I'm being kind here. But I'll tell you about the politics in Louisiana at the time was that the first thing that you had to do upon arrival was you had to take care of the State Athletic Commission. Now, I'll let your imaginations and everything go wild as to what that meant. But with 75 people, I didn't have enough money to take care of the State Athletic Commission when I got there. Uh, my dad had driven me. Oh, we did a road trip, and so my dad had money on him, and I was able to, to take care of the Athletic Commission so they would allow us to have the show. We had the show, and we didn't make enough money to, to cover anything. It was also at a time that Bill Watts did not allow draws, and Usually at that time, you know, guys would come in every day. First thing they'd do is anybody need a draw? And what that meant is you could draw cash from your paycheck that you were going to get and get cash that night. Well, Watts was like, nobody gets draws anymore without express permission from me personally. Bad, bad Leroy Brown was on the card and bad, bad Leroy Brown comes, comes to me and says, I need a, a $250 draw. Well, his pay that night would not have been $250 in general. He says, I need $250 draw or else I'm not going out. I said, well, I guess you won't be going out. I called Bill Watts and I said, I'll ask Bill. Bill said no, and if he gives you any shit, fire him on the spot. Well, I'm in Jennings, Louisiana. It's not my show. I'm just filling in, working the working as an agent for this show. Grizzly's not there. Bill's not there. It's all me. And I tell Leroy, I said, Bill said there's no uh, no draw, and if you don't want to work, you can go home. He says, well, maybe I'll take it out of your ass. I said, or you always have that choice, too. Leroy went back, and I guess he cut a promo on the, the dressing room in, in uh, the heel dressing room. I had told Duggan, and Duggan said, don't let him leave. Duggan was determined that he was going to have that match with Leroy Brown and that we weren't going to have a battle royal. And he said, let me know if he's going to leave. Well, I went in the coach's office and I was on the phone. And during that time, Leroy had taken a, apparently 
as the legend goes. I didn't, wasn't there, didn't see it. Took a knife out of his bag and went in to the room where I was. Well, when he came in and I looked up, there was Leroy demanding his money. I said, I don't have any money to give you. And he says, well, then I'm gone. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw both Sting and Rob Recksteiner standing at the door. And Leroy left, and uh, Rob and Sting said, hey, don't let him get you alone again. He's He's got a knife, and he's... Uh, talking a bunch of shit that he's going to get his money from you. We're just going to make, we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I always appreciated that from those two guys. I thought it was cool as shit that they had my back. And Leroy went to pack his bag. Jim Duggan went over there and grabbed Leroy and they went out and Duggan beat Leroy Brown from one end of the building to another. So they quote had their match and Leroy got in his car and took off. But uh, Rob Recksteiner and Steve Borden were there kind of watching my back that night. And I always appreciated that. Man, the wrestling business. Something else. Scott Steiner goes on to be trained by uh, Jerry Graham Jr. in Toledo, Ohio. He starts wrestling under his real name in the WWA and has a good little run there. And then he moves on to the CWA in 88, where he teams with Billy Joe Travis and uh, has some interesting times there. Of course, the Fullers are there. Jimmy Golden's there. Uh, lots of fun stuff. You know, names that you may remember. Colonel Robert Parker, Bunkhouse Buck, all those guys are there. Uh, from there, he makes his way to the NWA in 1989, and as they say, the rest is history. He and his brother form maybe one of the most successful tag teams in WCW history. Do you remember how all of that comes about where the contract with WCW is coming to an end, and now they're coming over to the WWF? Is that a conversation that you were involved in? Who reached out to who? How did it first come about where... The Steiner brothers are in contact with Stanford, Connecticut. At that time, it was J.J. Dillon, I believe, in the late 80s that had reached out and had the contact with them at WCW. Um, I had talked about, you know, knowing Rob, and obviously they were a great team, so we were looking to bring them in much earlier, but it was, it was probably J.J. that had all of that that took place early in that time. So the rumor in innuendo is that uh, Bill Watts is the guy who really got the ball rolling here sort of accidentally because when he takes over for WCW, he sort of lowballs the Steiners based on what they were making before or what their expectation of their new contract might be. Did you hear that? Any truth to that? We had heard the the rumors that Watts was basically tearing up all the old contracts and lowballing everybody. That was Bill's way of you know, I'll get this thing <laughs> under budget. So Bill's just tearing up contracts and, and renegotiating and offering guys a lot less money than they had made before. You know, and I think, uh, you know, obviously they were in, in a cost-cutting time in WCW, and uh, we've broken this down before, but WCW was not actually being paid by the television station the way USA pays WWE today. So even though they're providing all these big ratings and doing really good audiences, they're not participating income-wise at all. They just have an opportunity to use it as a promotional vehicle. Now, you've kind of talked about how Scott Steiner was maybe the apple of Vince's eye coming in, and maybe there was an idea that maybe they're not a tag team. And I know you referenced that you wanted to bring them in as a tag team, but did Vince have other plans? 
Well, actually, no. It, it was actually Scott Steiner was the apple of mine and Pat's eye. And how it came about, we were we were watching these these guys, uh, Rob and Scott. They were amazing as a team, but the one with the charisma was Scott. He had the long hair, and he was just so damn charismatic out there. The audience got behind him. He had a great look, and he was young. We were looking to make a change, and this was going into WrestleMania 9, and it was the first time that we were going to change the format of the Royal Rumble, where the winner of the Royal Rumble would go on to WrestleMania to face the WWF champion. We thought, wouldn't it be great, out of nowhere, because WrestleMania is going to sell on its own, if an unknown in our world came in, won the Royal Rumble, and then went on to uh, WrestleMania and becomes the WWF champion, just out of nowhere. And the pitch was for Scott Steiner to enter the Royal Rumble at, like, number... 12 or something like that, not the first one, not the last one, but come in, make a hell of a showing and suplex a bunch of people out of their pants and over the top rope and so on and so forth, win the damn thing, then go to uh, go to WrestleMania. Vince didn't see it. Vince thought, my God, nobody will know who he is. We're like, that's the point. You know, those that know, they'll be happy to see him. Those that don't know, they'll be impressed and they'll, they'll want to see more. So now this guy's headline in WrestleMania and we have to go back and tell the story. Vince didn't want to hear it. Just did not want to hear it. Didn't like it. Didn't want to hear any more about it. And, uh, then it became, okay, then let's bring him in as a team. <laughs> you know, they're a monster tag team. Let's bring them both in. And that's when, when Vince was like, okay, you know, let's take a look at him as a team. But I think it would have been, I, I truly to this day, I stand by it. Um, I think it would have blown the roof off the place. Hypothetically speaking, had you been able to sell Vince McMahon on that idea, would the Lex Luger, Lex Express experiment have ever happened? If Scotty had gotten over, probably not. It's just interesting to think about if Scott Steiner as a single star, as a top guy, as a world champion, if that would have happened in early 93, the whole Lex Luger, Lex Express thing wouldn't have happened. And odds are pretty good that Scott may have hung around the WWF and not been in and out so quickly. And as a result, Scott Steiner could have been around for the Attitude Era with Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and Mankind and The Undertaker, and none of that happened. It's just interesting to look back and think about what could have been. What if, man, what if? And the idea, you know, the idea about it wasn't even so much Scott Steiner, although Scotty did play a big, big role in it just in his work. He was exciting as hell. He was different. Scott Steiner stood out at a time when everybody was doing the same shit. And he was doing all these different, making these amateur moves look unbelievable and was such a great athlete that we thought, man, you want, you, you want to compare somebody to Hulk Hogan now? 
here's a big kid. And Vince's thing too was his height. Ah, he's, he's not, not nearly as big as Hulk, but you believed that he could drop Hulk on his head and take him. You believed that there wasn't anybody out there that he couldn't take with his wrestling ability. So the fact that he was different, the fact that he wasn't as big as Hulk, the fact that he had the long hair and all this other stuff was everything that we were looking for in the rest, in the style of the match. It was exciting. It was different. Um, it was a tough sell. Obviously, we didn't sell it that well. It's interesting to me that they come in and they so heavily are pushed uh, with their University of Michigan amateur careers. You know, they're, they're wearing those jackets, and they've got um, a song that's similar to Michigan's fight song. And this feels like something Jim Ross would have really pushed for, but he wasn't even with the company at the time, right? Well, Jim, Jim came in at WrestleMania 9, so... Jim, as far as commentary, you know, he could push, he, he would go ahead and push that stuff. That wasn't necessarily a big direction as to we want to promote their college deal, but they were Michigan guys. They had a Michigan accent. Why not? It was real and they were a real damn tag team. I'll tell you that. Uh, the theme music, of course, we talked about Jim Johnson to start. What's the, what's the thinking behind the music that you guys put with them? Michigan theme song ripoff. Michigan band, you know, the, the football thing. Well, so I guess my question is, if, if we're saying that wasn't really the push, but then that's the theme song, isn't that inconsistent? Not really. Okay. So they're coming out in their Michigan jackets and they've got Michigan, uh, fight songs, but we're not pushing Michigan. Cool. We're off to no. a good start so far. Yeah. Um, Vince's vision, since it wasn't Michigan, you know, despite the music and the jackets, what was it? He wanted loud colored tights like they had worn in WCW and just keep doing what they were doing in WCW? Or what was Vince's vision for how he saw their characters? He saw these guys as youthful wrestling monsters. Uh, that they were, he did like their amateur background and he liked, he liked the style that they worked in the ring, which took their amateur um, credentials and just made them shine. But it was they did it in a different way. You've kind of shared before on the show that sometimes you would watch the WCW pay-per-view with people from the office. Do you remember watching a Steiner Brothers match with Vince and him being impressed with them? And if so, do you remember who the opponents were? No, I don't ever remember watching watching them with Vince. I remember watching with Howard and Pat all the time. Um God, everybody they did, but they, they outshined everybody. You know, with the Frankensteiner, the Frankensteiner was something that only small guys did back in the day. It was a lucha move that, you know, the small guys did. And here was Scott Steiner doing this and making it look better than other people had ever done. Yeah, I feel like we should mention here that a lot of people credit Scott Steiner as being the creator of the Frankensteiner and that he created the move. You know, of course, a lot of uh, Lucha fans are going to say, no, that was just a Hurricane Rana. It was around before. Do you remember the first time you saw the move? Yeah, the first time I saw it was Gino Hernandez doing it like in 1979 or something like that, which was that was the first time I had seen it. And everybody was talking same thing like this. We all thought Gino had invented it. And everybody's going, no, it's a Mexican ice spot. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the deal is, I believe it's even named after the guy who invented it. Um, I'm going to butcher it, of course, because I'm a redneck, but I believe it's Huracan Ramirez, but that's the reason it's called a Huracan Rana. But it is still interesting to me that so many people, Scott Steiner himself, still say, oh, no, I, I invented that, bro. Um, the first time that you see that, though, on American TV, at least the first time I saw it on American TV, is when Scott Steiner did it. And I think people sort of overlook what a big move that was. I mean, if you went to a WCW show, whether it was a television taping or a house show or whatever, if the Steiner brothers were on the card, that's what everybody wanted to see. That's the move that everybody wanted to see in the Steiner brothers match. Sure. That was the finish, man. That was the pop. And, and that was something that, and especially for a guy the size of Scott Steiner to do it, man, that's impressive shit. Uh, no doubt. And, um, I was, a, I was a fan as a kid and I was excited for them to be here. Uh, anywhere the Steiner brothers were, man, I was in. And, uh, they were in January 8th of 1993 in Philadelphia, their old NWA stomping grounds, getting a win over the executioners the next day in East Rutherford and then the next day in Allentown. Uh, and then on January 11th, it's the very first raw from the Manhattan Center. The Steiner brothers get a win over the executioners. Uh, this is a pretty generic name for a tag team. Who were the executioners? Do you remember? Jose Luis Rivera and Jose Estrada. How did you think their, uh, their television debut came, came together? I thought it was great. Absolutely great because the people in New York, man, it was, it was electric. They always liked when somebody that they knew a little bit from WCW or the old NWA would come in and, debut and they like to see what we're going to do with them and the fact that here were the Steiners as the Steiners they knew them we didn't change them they were excited it was good good debut I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to get there for sure Uh, of course you guys had a history of changing people's gimmicks you know Barry Windham comes in and he's the fucking stalker and Dustin Reynolds comes in and he's gold dust how did the Steiner brothers come in and they're the Steiner brothers Probably laziness out of more than anything. Some, you know, I'll tell, I'll tell you exactly how that happens. Time runs out. Vince will, I think Vince, if he could change everybody's name, he would. So that he can own it. And sometimes you'll talk about it and you'll talk about it and you'll talk about it to death. Time will run out. You'll be sitting there at a television tape and go, Okay, we gotta go. What are we gonna go with? God damn it, just go with whatever the hell their name is. And then it's on TV and you're good. <laughs> Ted DiBiase Jr. is a perfect example of that. We had three months, I shit you not, of he wanted a new name and a new gimmick for Ted DiBiase Jr. And we all wanted him to just be Ted DiBiase Jr. Nobody could come up with anything, so when it came time for him to debut, it was fuck it. He's Ted DiBiase Jr. <laughs> That's just amazing to me that so much of people's careers and what they're able to use afterwards and earn a living is just, ah, oh, we ran out of time, fuck it. Yeah, it, but it, but think about that, too, is that you could take Kurt Hennig's kid and bring him in and Vince would probably say, God, he'd make a good Ted DiBiase Jr., wouldn't he? <laughs> well, we had Ted DiBiase Jr. 
who was a pretty good Ted DiBiase Jr., but you didn't like that. Um, yes, it it can be. You can find the funny points in it sometimes. Are you are you saying that really happened? What? That Curtis Axel was maybe considered to be Ted DiBiase Jr. That was a hypothetical, but it, that would have been fucking hilarious. By the way, you could you could see no. I'm saying I could see Vince going. I need a Dusty Junior. <laughs> well, Dusty Dustin's available. No, no one would buy that. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> Find me Dusty Junior. I want the puppies and a blotch. Put the splotch on the other side. Um. Yeah, just weird shit like that sometimes when you, uh, well, we have that. I don't want that one. <laughs> so when you, why? When you guys are thinking about the first Raw, the Steiner brother debut feels like something you guys would have really wanted to promote for that, right? Absolutely. You know, this, it's, it's the first, man, it's the first time you're in New York. You're in the Manhattan Center. We wanted to make a big splash. This was a live show, so we wanted to give it a feeling of, of special. And that was special to have the Steiners first time in the WWF on Monday Night Raw Live. We get to uh, Royal Rumble 93, January 24th. It's going down in Sacramento, and we see the Steiners get a win over the Beverly Brothers. Uh, any memories of that match or the Beverly Brothers? I don't know when we'll talk about them again. Oh, the Beverly Brothers are, to me, an unsung heroes of tag, tag team because they, um, Wayne Bloom was like a power lifter. The skinny one, the tall skinny one. Right. He was a power lifter, an extremely strong guy and a tough guy. Mike Enos, one of the most easygoing, Really nice guys you'd ever want to meet. I liked the hell out of both of them. They both came from Minnesota, and they were part of that whole Road Warrior, Kurt Hennig, Rick Rude group. Tough as nails, uh, meaning both Kevin Walkaltz and nails, you know what I mean. But, uh, really good guys, and they could, they could go. I just felt that they were always almost in the, in the right place at the wrong time, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because they always got overshadowed. Timing. Yes. Um, they start working. Do you remember the, the uh, Royal Rumble match? You know, at this point, they've had two really high-profile matches for the company on the debut Raw and then at the Rumble 93. At this point, is Vince feeling pretty good about his investment? What was Vince's early feeling about their debuts? Uh, he, he loved them because they looked strong and they looked like monsters. And they came out and we, you know, other than you had Demolition, who's a big power team, but they didn't move like the Steiners, and here was a big power team that could move like cruiserweights. Okay. So he was happy with them. I want to ask about January 29th because uh, the Steiners get a win over the Beverly Brothers, and it happens in Madison Square Garden. And there's different, you know, depending on who you ask, people feel differently about Madison Square Garden. Do you remember either one of the Steiners being particularly excited to wrestle in the world's most famous arena? I I have no idea. I would imagine. I would hope they would because of the history there. And the garden is the garden. Is the garden is the garden. You know, when when they're making the loops, because back then, even though it's not the heyday of the 80s, you guys are still working very regularly. You know, you're the 25th in San Jose, the 26th in Fresno, three days later at MSG, the next day a double shot in New Haven and Providence, the next day in Toronto, the next day uh, that you're doing Raw. 
So you're just sort of all over the place. Do you remember who the Steiners traveled with? Were they sort of loners and just traveling together, or somebody else in the car with them? I have no idea. They were probably loners. I know later on they traveled with Luger, and the three of them always hung out together, but uh I have no idea who they traveled with together when they first. Maybe the Beverly Brothers, because they were, they were pretty tight. Uh, on June, or sorry, January 30th, uh, the Steiners would get a win over Double Trouble. What's your favorite Double Trouble match? My favorite Double Trouble match was when they faced the Twin Head Hunters. God, man, do you, do you remember Double Trouble? No. I don't, I don't, I am not even sure if they're still alive or not, but they were two really, really large guys, probably both 450. Um, they painted their face, they wore hoods, they, they were a twin gimmick, but they were terrible. Okay. I, I see them. Um, yeah, these are some these are some big boys here. Yeah, and they couldn't move, but but the Steiners made them fly, <laughs> whether they wanted to or not. Yeah, ding uh, ding ding. Interestingly enough, on February first, the Steiners would be Bobby Who and Glenn Ruth. Catch everybody up as to who Glenn Ruth would go on to be. The headbanger Glenn Ruth, and was supposed to be the damn Doink the Clown, DTK Enterprises. By God. Through early February, the Steiners are working almost exclusively with the Beverly Brothers. Uh, they have some different opponents, I guess, for tryout matches in Long Beach and San Diego. Uh, and then it's back to doing business with the Beverly Brothers. They're all over the country for this, too. I should mention Boston, Hershey, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Portland, Oakland, Stockton, uh, Oshkosh, Chicago, Fort Wayne, Memphis, Nassau, Auburn Hills, Daytona, and Cincinnati. All Beverly Brothers wins. Uh, kind of an interesting uh, change of pace for them because when they were with WCW, they weren't working this house show schedule. Do you remember there being a conversation about the number of dates being far greater than what they were working with WCW and the location? I mean, this is a lot more flight travel than maybe it was before, right? Well, I, I, they knew what they were getting into. They knew that when they came here, it was all about the house show business. So they knew, and I don't know how different it really was from WCW at the time because WCW was running house shows. They might have had a little more time off, but this was a period that, man, we were running. Well, WCW is running house shows in Jacksonville, Florida, and Biloxi. You know, it's different than, you know, hey, we're in Toronto, we're in Long Beach, we're in New York, and that was three days. Um, let's talk a little bit about the creative. When When they first come in, do you remember there being a conversation about who they wanted to work with or someone requesting to work with them? No, not that specific, other than we did eventually see them being the WWF Tag Team Champions, and we kind of wanted to settle down with them for a little while because we thought they were a credible tag team, people would believe them, and they were young. So we wanted to kind of take that tag team division and rebuild it, if you will, and center it around them. Well, I mean, they're certainly doing that. They're getting wins. Uh, they don't lose at all in the month of January or February. And then as we roll into March, uh, we see them get a win on March 1st in the Manhattan Center over Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy. Smarten everybody up. Who was Dwayne Gill? Gilbert. You know, I saw him at WrestleCade. He was so appreciative of us talking about the Ninja Turtles or really? the Toxic Turtles. That's awesome. 
and he, he was just so happy. But Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy were perennial uh, guys on the TV that helped get other talent over. Dwayne Gill went on to be Gilberg, and of course, as everyone knows, they were the Toxic Turtles, and they just got brand new outfits made by the folks at Disney, believe it or not. So uh, through the month of March, uh, we're again seeing the Steiners working with the Beverly Brothers. We're all over the place. The Steiners are winning every single time. Uh, and now we're on our march for WrestleMania. It's April 4th, Caesars Palace. We've covered WrestleMania 9 in long form in the archives. You can check that out there. Uh, but it's kind of interesting. After working with the Beverly Brothers all over the country, they had one match in New Haven against Money, Inc. They're working WrestleMania with the Head Shrinkers. Why were these guys put together? It doesn't seem like there was a, a big angle here. They're not working matches on the house shows to sort of fine-tune this. How does this Head Shrinker-Steiner Brothers match come together? The Head Shrinkers were a team that we were also building, and that's kind of you know where we were going a little bit, where we knew eventually we wanted to get to the Head Shrinkers and the Steiners, and the Head Shrinkers were protected up until this point as well. So for these two guys to meet, two guys, two teams to meet at WrestleMania. It was going to be a collision, and it was two teams. You had you couldn't pick them. So it was two pretty much badass teams meeting for the first time at WrestleMania. And there is one dangerous spot in there that if you haven't watched this in a long Ooh. time, you should go out of your way to watch WrestleMania 9 at some point. Um, these guys were uh, all the way live, as Bruce likes to say. Uh, not too long after that, I guess the next day, in fact, uh, we see the Steiner brothers get a win over Louis Spicoli and Bobby Young. It always tickles me to see Louis hanging around uh, on the West Coast here, and obviously this is Phoenix, but still not too far from his old stomping grounds of California because he's uh, he's sniffing around the bigs here before he gets a deal. How long was Louis Spicoli on the radar, and, and who ultimately made the decision to sign him? Well, I ultimately made the decision to sign him at much, much later time. But here, Louie was probably 18 years old, if that, and just trying to get work wherever he could, whenever he could. So he was coming from out of that Bill Anderson camp and wrestling school in L.A. and picking up work wherever he could. We shift gears when we go to Europe, and uh, the Steiners start working with Money, Inc., uh, they're in uh, Belgium and Glasgow and Newcastle and Belfast and even Barcelona. They've got quite a tour here overseas. How did the Steiner brothers fare on a European tour? Uh, hell, they fared great because they're they're Americans and foreigners. They like Americans. Now their their style of wrestling, I think it translated any anywhere and everywhere, and the international audiences loved these guys. That's what I wanted to ask because it felt like they had some sort of intangible, similar to the way Bret Hart did, where they would just be really popular in Europe. Uh, why do you think that was? Is it the dark hair? Is it the mullet? <laughs> what, what is it about uh, a Scott Steiner and a Rick Steiner that translated so well over there? The combination of the swagger, the the bodies, the both young, good-looking, um, Scotty with, yeah, Scotty with the mullet, but they just had a natural charisma. They carried themselves like champions. They carried themselves like badasses. And those international audiences, man, just loved somebody that, that came over and said, Hey, I'm going to kick your ass and then did it. 
So after a very, very busy April abroad, uh, they're back in the United States for May, and uh, this is quite the schedule they're running here. They're working with uh, Money, Inc. and the Hedge Rankers a lot. Uh, on May 1st, they're in Rochester, the next day in Birmingham, then Hartford, then Youngstown, uh, the 8th, the 9th, the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 21st, 22nd. They do a double shot, the 26th and the 31st. That's a lot of shows in a month. Is any of this catching up to them at this point? This is a much busier schedule than they ever kept with WCW. If it was, I don't remember them saying anything to us. <laughs> you know, they were they were going. Everybody, you know, now for them at this point, it's still, they're, well, they're six months in, so yeah. I think they're getting used to it at this point. Um, it's sort of interesting that the first time the Steiners lose, it happens on May 21st. The head shrinkers get a win over them in Pittsburgh, and they do it twice the next day, once in East Rutherford and once in Philadelphia. What's the rationale by having this winning streak sort of go away? Maybe just to change things up and, and just to have different matches and try something different. Do you recall there being any sort of pushback from the Steiners? Were they easy to deal with as far as doing business and, and putting guys over? At this time with this run, man, I never had any problems with the Steiners doing business, ever. Uh, on June 11th and 12th, we would see uh, the Steiners beat Blake Beverly and Damian Demento. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Damian Demento. What's your favorite Damian Demento match? I'll tell you, I do have a favorite Damian Demento match, and that is when Damian Demento worked with The Undertaker, and I think Damian was looking at that as that was his big opportunity to really, you know, make it big now because he's working with The Undertaker, and now they're going to give me the push when, in reality, Vince had kind of burnt out on Damian Demento and was, ah, just feed him to The Undertaker. Let's move on. I thought Damian Demento coming in, um, I was a big fan. I'm the one that hired him. I, I liked his look. He had a different look and I forget what the hell his name was before he was Damian Demento, but he was a big guy. Mondo clean. Mondo clean. Yeah. yeah. A big guy, gift to gab, but in our world, believe it or not, you're going to love this one. He was too hokey. Oh my God. Is this real? That's real. You guys said Papa fucking Shango and Damian Demento. Hey, 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 Papa Shango's goddamn voodoo master. You be careful what you say because he'll make a Conrad doll and he'll like stick needles right there in your uh, belly area and then you'll like get food poisoning. Well, maybe he did that in Houston. Chat me up about uh, how would you describe the Damian Demento character? Let's say you're you're trying to describe this character to my mom. She doesn't know anything about wrestling. She's not familiar with this person. She sees him walk out dressed like he's dressed. And if you haven't uh, heard of Damian Demento, let me encourage you to throw it in your Google machine for the cowardly lion here and um, and find Damian Demento's picture. Because I, I'm, I'm curious how you would describe this. Imagine waking up in an insane asylum. And all you can... The lights are out. You, you can't turn any lights on, and you're hearing strange noises next to you in the bed next to you. And then the lights come on, and there's Damien, and it will all make sense. Can you imagine, you know, in a post-9-11 world where the guys have to carry on all of their gear like they have 
for a long time in wrestling whenever they do flight travel. But now it goes through the scanner. That didn't happen back in the day. Can you imagine the look on a TSA agent's face when that fucking shit rolled through the scanner? Well, and especially when you take a look at the guy whose bag it is standing there in front of you. Well, kabuki-ish. <laughs> to say the least. Um, King of the Ring, June 13th in Dayton. We see the Steiner Brothers and the Smoking Guns beat Money, Inc. and the Head Shrinkers. I got to say, this feels a little bit like a throwaway match. At this point, do you guys have your mind made up what you're going to do with the Steiners? It feels like, uh, I don't know, there's not a really concise plan. Sure there is. We wanted to get the tag team titles on them, and it was do it it where on a pay-per-view where you're going to have a smaller audience or do it on television with the larger, you know, more eyeballs. So get them on the pay-per-view, get them on payday, and move on. So it feels like a throwaway match, but the next night they do exactly what you said. The Steiner brothers beat Money, Inc. to win the tag team titles, but then they lose it back on a house show on June 16th. So they win the belts on the 14th and then lose them on the 16th. And then on the 19th in St. Louis, the Steiners win them back at another house show. This isn't something you guys did very often, but it's interesting when and why you do it. It feels like the reason to do it here is house shows may be a little soft. Let's pump the gates up. Let's let everybody know that anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation. Is that the pitch? And you've got to be there live to be a part of history. Championships change every single day. That's it, Daddy. So were you guys uh, like making a big deal out of that on your syndicated television to push tickets as a reason to come out because, hey, you never know what's going to happen. Here's what happened in St. Louis or whatever. Sure. We were doing, and we were doing also highlights on some of the cable shows of a little bit more from the house shows. We had cameras there and select dates where we would tape things and then put them back on the, you know, like the mania shows. And, oh, my God, this happened in St. Louis. And, by God, from there. Who would – um who would make the call to send a camera crew to a house show, and would you use a local cameraman, or would you send one of your WWF television camera guys on the road? No, we we would make the call, and we would usually make the call if we were going to do something special like that ahead of time, and we would send one of our own guys. But the the other sell on that, too, when we didn't do that, we did the title changes, was you should have been there because our cameras were not there, and the only way that you would have seen it is being there live. So it's kind of interesting, very quickly, in the span of a week here, the Steiners are a two-time tag team champion, uh, and then they are busy. I mean, real busy through the rest of June and July. They're working mostly with Money, Inc., and uh, I found it kind of interesting that in New Haven on the 28th, they had a special guest referee in Sergeant Slaughter. I've always been curious when you have a one-off like this where just randomly there's a name from the past as a special referee, almost with no build-up or explanation, is that just as an added attraction to sell tickets? Sure, and Sarge lived in New Haven. Oh, so there you go. Since he's local, just come on down. Yeah. Um, through July, they're working a lot. The 5th, the 6th, the 10th, 11th, 17th, 18th, 23rd, 24th, 29th, 30th, 31st, and then on into August on the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 6th, uh, usually working with Money, Inc., of course, the Steiners winning every time, or the head shrinkers with the Steiners winning every time. Uh, we do get a kind of an interesting match here 
on August 12th in Providence. The Steiners would get a win over Yokozuna and Bam Bam Bigelow. So they retain their titles here. But it seems like a very interesting match because Yokozuna is a top guy. Uh, Bigelow is also, you know, a WrestleMania main eventer, believe it or not. What do you think? Should that match have been on a, on a Raw or a pay-per-view? I don't remember seeing much of this Bam Bam Yoko tag team. No, it was an attraction. Providence is a unique market because Providence is smack dab in the middle of Boston, Hartford, and you've got in the New England Territory. You run those towns on a regular basis. Boston gets a bit of the, I mean, Boston. Providence gets a bit of the Boston television as well as the Hartford New Haven television. So they get a little bit of everything. So you, you had to kind of program Providence and Boston and, and Hartford so that they didn't overlap. And Providence usually got the better show out of that. You know, we talked a little bit about The Undertaker a minute ago. How did, and we know Yokozuna and Undertaker were pretty tight behind the scenes. How did the Steiner brothers get along with a Yokozuna and an Undertaker? Great. I don't know. You know, I don't know that they, man, the Steiner brothers, they, they were fun guys. They're young. They seem to get along with everybody. I don't know of anybody that they had any issues with. Uh, the Steiners, uh, get a couple of wins over the Quebecers in August, uh, and then they're back working with the head shrinkers all over the horn. This gets us to August 23rd. The SummerSlam Spectacular in Poughkeepsie, and they do a salad steel cage match with the Steiners getting a win over Money, Inc. And, of course, a week later, it's the real SummerSlam, SummerSlam 93 from Auburn Hills. Here we would see the Steiners beat the Heavenly Bodies, which is kind of interesting because it's uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard and Jimmy Del Rey. How does this match come together? Goddamn, motherfuckers. Trying to work with Jim Cornette, and Jim Cornette was doing Smoky Mountain Wrestling at the time. We were interested in bringing Jimmy in to help us out, and we were looking to help Cornette out, take some of his top guys like the Heavenly Bodies and uh, Rock and Roll, some different people, be able to spotlight them on our television show, put Jim on our show to help his Smoky Mountain promotion, give them some national exposure. We also would like, you know, for me, uh, I wanted Jim to come in and help in the office and be a part of the creative process. So this was a, this was an entry and we knew that Jim, uh, Jimmy Del Rey and Tom would give the Steiners a great match. I thought they did. How did your brother enjoy working with the Steiners? I think he was excited to be up in the WWF. I don't know that anybody, uh, well, no, the Steiners were easy. I don't know that they ever had a, had a bad match with them. The Steiners could be rough on extra guys, man, and beat the shit out of them. They didn't do a whole lot of that here. Did you see them rough up some enhancement guys in their time in the WWF? Not that I remember in the WWF. No, I do. I've seen it in WCW before and I've heard about it. Do you remember anybody, whether it was an underneath guy or not, coming through the curtain and complaining about um, the way the Steiners handled them? No, I don't. This is a really interesting show. 
so on September 3rd, we get a Quebec Providence rules match. Well, see, that's, well, hang on. See, that's where the narrative comes where people say, oh, they were rough because they looked like they were killing them, but they were taking care of guys and they weren't really killing them, which shows, you know, just their professionalism as far as what they were doing then. Yes, they could have killed them, but they made it look like they were killing them to the point where people were like, oh my God, that was brutal. Well, you got to give me something, you know. I mean, otherwise, we're just saying, hey, remember that time the Steiners were in the WWF? They were very professional credits. I mean, i got to have something here. So I'll keep digging. The Quebecers, okay, keep digging. The Quebecers beat the Steiners by DQ on September 13th to win the tag titles when the Quebecers manager, Johnny Polo, of course, he'd be the future Raven, threw a hockey stick in the ring. Well, Scott catches it, and the ref sees it, so he DQs the Steiners. And the titles change hands here on a DQ because it's a Quebec province rules match. Who booked the, who booked the shit? Oh no, come on. You got to admit that was great shit. <laughs> no, it is pretty fun. It's just, you know, we're always used to, okay, the titles can't change hands on a DQ. This is a pretty innovative finish. Is this a Pat Patterson finish? It was a Pat Patterson finish, and it was a way to help get the Quebecers just some more heat on the Quebecers and try and explain that gimmick a little bit more because I think that the guy in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, doesn't know what the fuck a Quebecer is. Let's talk about the Quebecers. Why were they put together? You know, we've talked about them a little bit on our Royal Rumble 94 episode, but it's an interesting pairing. Where did you guys find Pierre? Carl Wallet was... um he was an extra from Montreal. He was a friend of Jacques Rougeau. He only had one eye, but he was a miracle because he could catch a ball um, with that one eye. He, wait, wait, he, he, caught, in, he caught the ball with his eye? Yeah, okay. right in the eye. Well, that see, the way you've talked about it before, I thought he just had one eye, but he could still catch a ball. But if you're saying he caught the ball with the eye, that's a different deal. It's a miracle. It is. It is, but he was a hell of a hand, and he had always come in, and since he was friends with Jacques Rougeau, and for whatever reason, it seems like we always had to have somebody from Montreal on the heel side, um, we put them together. And the Mountie gimmick was a good, successful gimmick for Jacques back in the day, that the Quebecers <laughs> were something that just kind of fit, and they got heat. They got heat just by being themselves. You add, and then you add, uh, Scotty Flamingo or whatever there to him. And man, that's three heat seeking missiles. No doubt about it. Um, of course, Scott beat Polo the next week on Raw. And, uh, then we see the Steiners working again with Yokozuna and Bam Bam Bigelow. I really wish that would have been more of a tag team. That could have been pretty fun. Uh, as we get into October, we see the guys working some dates for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Of course, they're familiar with Cordant from the old NWA days. Do you recall any sort of conversations about them looking forward to or not being particularly excited about working Smoky Mountain shows? I think that they felt that the, you know, with Tom and Jimmy, that they were smaller because here they'd been working with the Head Shrinkers, you know, Money Inc., you got uh, Yoko and Bam Bam, and then you got Tom and Jimmy, and they weren't as big as everybody else, and especially in the land of the WWF and land of the Giants, they were smaller. So I think the Steiners kind of looked at it like, you know, what are we, you know, how much are we going to sell for these guys? What are we going to do? The equalizer was Cornette and having Cornette on the outside and being able to do the managerial bullshit is 
how that helped. But, you know, for the most part, that was their, their rub as far as working with them, uh, in WWF. The Steiners get a win on one of those Smoky Mountain shows, but the others are all heavenly body wins by DQ. Uh, then we get back to the main roster and the Steiners are working with the Quebecers and the Head Shrinkers. The Steiners are winning every single one of these as we cruise on into Survivor Series 1993. This goes down, uh, in Boston on November 24th. The Steiners were on the All Americans team tagging with Lex Luger and The Undertaker. And they're taking on the foreign fanatics, which is Yokozuna, Ludwig Borga, Crush, and Jacques from the Quebecers. Uh, we've talked about this briefly on the Undertaker episode, but what do you remember most about this All-Americans tag team? The one and only promo where somehow the American flag found its way into the lining of the Undertaker's jacket. And when Lex Luger asked for everybody to show their colors for the All-Americans and everybody was wearing red, white, and blue and Undertaker spread his arms to show his lining, there was the that beautiful red, white, and blue lining inside the Undertaker's jacket. How did the Undertaker like having the American flag on the inside of his jacket? He absolutely loved it, and it is so much so that he took it home, and his dog being a uh, true American, man, apparently his dog uh, ate the lining because he loved it so much. Just the lining. He really tried to pitch that his dog ate it. Comes, man, you know what? If Undertaker says it, it's got to be true. But, so, yes, his dog his dog ate the lining. So and Vince asked him what happened to it. He goes, ah, man, my dog. So Vince had somebody else sew a new one in? No, we just didn't ask him to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This, of course, was originally supposed to be Tatanka on the All-Americans. But on October 30th, Ludwig Borga pinned Tatanka with one finger after hitting him with a chair. And this ended Tatanka's two-year undefeated streak. After the match, Yokozuna comes in, and he and Borga beat up Tatanka more. So in storyline, he suffered injuries from this match, and that caused him to be taken out of the Survivor Series match. I'm not sure we'll talk about Tatanka again. Why was he undefeated for two years and then lose like this, and now he's off of Survivor Series? Well, that was a big deal. It was a big deal for him to lose at that point. We were trying to build Borga for Luger, and so we needed to build this really big monster heel. Thought, what better way than to then to defeat a Native American in Tatanka. And the way that, you know, he did it, it was, I thought it was great. I thought it helped Tatanka big time, you know, losing that first one. And it built Borga as well as the monster heel going in to work with Luger. Is Survivor Series 1993 the worst Survivor Series? Huh. No. What's Can't worse? think of one worse, but I'm sure there has been. I don't know. I think that's probably the worst. Worse than the one? Was this one in Boston? Yeah. Okay, it is worse. <laughs> yeah, I take it back. I take it back. Yeah, this is the worst. You know, I mean, even 94 was sort of ridiculous because we had, um, you know, the million dollar team and they were taking on, uh, guts and glory and we had, um, the royal family with clowns are us. You know, some of that's sort of silly. You know, the bad guys and the Teamsters, but we did have Undertaker Yokozuna and we had Bob Backlund, Bret Hart. So there's something, but this one here, 
Not the best one. I can't wait for us to cover that uh, this next year for, believe it or not, uh, quite the anniversary, 25 years since that went down. Yeah, I'm going to give it the worst one. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> okay, that's... It just is. Um, I, allegedly, Pierre from the Quebecers was supposed to be in this match as well, but he was injured in storyline, so Crush took his place on the Survivor Series team and he became the only American on the foreign fanatics because, of course, he's from Hawaii. So in the match, neither Steiner brother eliminates anyone, but Rick is eliminated by Borga, and then Scott is eliminated by Yokozuna. Luger is the eventual winner of the match, last eliminating Borga. What do you remember about this match? <laughs> Try to forget this match. It was absolutely just brutal. Yeah, here's here's the problem, man. You got Borga that we're trying to get over. And you're trying to get uh Ludwig over as this big monster heel. You got Undertaker and Luger and Steiners on the other side, all big badasses Americans that you really want. The only guy that you can beat looking at this thing is Jacques of the Quebecers. And it just, we, we booked ourselves into a corner and, and it's, it's terrible when you get there and it's actually like, what the hell do you do? Cause you can't beat anybody. So it sucks. So then, you know, the, the match itself actually sucks. And that's what happened here. Cause nobody want, nobody wanted, nobody wanted to beat anybody. Everybody had to be protected. Uh, November 25th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 30th, uh, and December 1st, 2nd, 4th, and 5th. We see the Steiners getting wins over the Quebecers, all by DQ in all of those matches. So the Quebecers are retaining their tag titles. Uh, and I found this to be a fairly interesting match. The Steiners would wrestle in New Japan on December 13th, and the Steiners get a win over the Jurassic Powers, Hercules and Scott Norton. What do you remember about allowing the guys to work New Japan in December? The best of my recollection, this was during a time that we were opening up talks with Japan and we were looking at some of the different offices that we could work with in Japan. We had been out of there for a long time not doing anything and thought that, okay, if we send them something with the Steiners, that this may open the door with New Japan and then we could possibly do something with them in the future. So that was the extent of it. I feel like I should mention here um, the name Jurassic Powers. Uh, this happens on December 13th of 1993. And, of course, in June of 1993, what movie came out, Bruce? Jurassic Park. This feels so Memphis, yet it's New Japan. Uh, as we wind up the, the, uh, the year here, we see a double shot. Uh, for the Steiners getting wins over the Quebecers on the 26th, and then they're working with the Quebecers again on the 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, and January 1st. Uh, so they're spending a lot of time working with the Quebecers, and both Steiners have kind of said they didn't like working with those guys. In fact, Scott goes on to say they were the shits, and Rick says it was a challenge to work with them. He felt like the matches didn't flow, and it was just pulling teeth. Why do you think the Steiners didn't feel like this was a good match for them? Because they were the shits, and <laughs> here's here's the problem with with the Quebecers, and here here is the issue that they had to deal with. Jacques thought that he was the end all be all, and Jacques had to work a certain way. Jacques's getting up in age this time. Jacques wasn't able to work the way that he used to work. Pierre 
could be heavy, um, figuratively and literally. So their styles didn't mesh. The Quebecers were always uh, talking about, you know, how does this, how does this make me look? And, you know, we need to be protected and we need to look at this. And, and it was a pain in the ass. So, yeah, they did not gel very well at all because of the styles. And the Steiners are somebody, you know, they do a lot of suplexes. They were moving. They busted their asses in the matches. And Jacques didn't like taking all those bumps. So he defers to Pierre. Hey, well, you go take the bumps. You're the young one going out there. And Pierre could be heavy and <laughs> just didn't make for good matches at all. And then that makes everybody be frustrated. On uh, January 4th, the Steiners make another shot for New Japan, and uh, they get a win over uh, Haas and Muto, uh, who we know as the Great Muta. It feels kind of interesting seeing the WWE work with New Japan. If you had to peg the likelihood that that would happen again, what would you put the odds at? You never say never, man. It could happen. It could definitely happen. Stranger things have happened. Like, you know, when, when we finally did go over there and Vince standing in between Baba and Inoki and having everybody join hands, they all said that would never happen. It's, uh, about, we're about a month out from Kenny Omega wrestling Chris Jericho in New Japan for their big, their version of WrestleMania, Wrestle Kingdom. Of course, Jericho, I don't believe is under contract as an in-ring wrestler right now. He may have some sort of other contract with the WWF, but, or WWE, but maybe not. You weren't there, of course, but how do you think Vince reacted to hearing that Jericho had booked a match with Omega for New Japan? Well, knowing Jericho and knowing Vince, I, I would bet money that Jericho approached Vince about it long beforehand, and Vince probably told him to go take the money. Jericho says he didn't uh, give anybody a heads up, and they found out about it the same way everybody did but he knew he had a strong enough relationship with Vince where it wouldn't matter. You buy that? I would, uh, I would think that he probably smartened him up beforehand. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more cool to the internet to say, no, I didn't tell him, but right. He probably told him. Um, another classic tag team match here that, uh, I'm kind of surprised never really made a big splash. It's a dark match on January 11th. It's the Steiner brothers taking on uh, Owen and Bret Hart, and they go to a double countout after almost 25 minutes. Uh, this match is available on the WrestleFest 94 videotape, but it feels like it could have been a pay-per-view main event, right? I mean, the Hearts and the Steiner brothers, that's good stuff. Okay. It was a great match, and it was it was specifically for uh, Coliseum Video. Why, did you, why so, did you say, okay, you didn't think it would be a good match? I don't think it would have been a main event at all at that time. Well, Bret Hart, I think it would have Bret been a great match. Bret Hart's your main eventer at the time. I understand that, but I just don't think that Owen wasn't in a place at this time. Um, but they, I do think that it was – I fuck, I remember it. It was a great match, and it was specifically done for the video. Yeah, well, we needed to get Mabel and Bam Bam in there if we were going to make it a main event. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, King of the Ring. The Quebecers are working with um, the Steiners through the rest of January and February. And then we get to, I guess we should mention, the Royal Rumble 1994 goes down on January 22nd. Both Steiners are in the Rumble match. Scott comes in at number one. He eliminates Samu, one of the head shrinkers. 
and then he is eliminated by Diesel. Rick comes in at number three and doesn't eliminate anyone, but is eliminated by Owen Hart. Did you guys ever have any discussion about perhaps splitting the Steiners up? Of course, I think most people remember that rumble where Demolition were one and two. Well, this is as close to, as close to that as we can get with them being one and three. Was there ever any sort of discussion about brother versus brother or something like that? There was, and they didn't want to do it. Uh, the Steiners didn't want to fight each other. They didn't want to wrestle against each other, and they were dead set against it. And it was also this was also during the time of Vince's. God damn, family brothers don't fight. So you're trying now. You're, I'm trying to convince three different people, but that was pitched, and that was pitched here. So um, you and Pat like the idea of having them get into it, but they and Vince want nothing to do with it. Exactly. Was there one brother who was more uh, dead set on not doing it than another? Like was was Rick a little more receptive than Scott, or vice versa, or was it just 100% not going to happen from both? Man, it was 100% not going to happen from both. They did not want to do it, and I think that. Scott looked at it as, I think Scott really saw and knew that he was the more charismatic and kind of the star of the team. And he didn't want to leave his brother. He didn't want to put his brother in that position. Good for him, then. Uh, after the Rumble, uh, the Steiners make some more shots for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And this starts to feel like trouble in paradise a little bit. Uh, because they make several shots here, and they work on uh, February 16th and 17th, getting wins over Bobby Eaton and Mike Enos, and then Jushin Liger and the Power Warrior. Uh, but then, come April 11th, they're back on Raw, and they beat Barry Hardy and uh, another partner. And then the next day, the Steiners get a win over Dwayne Gill and Tom Alton. We fast forward to May 7th, and on Superstars, we see IRS beat Scott to qualify for the King of the Ring. And that's it. Uh, shortly thereafter, the Steiners are out of there. What led to the end of their run? Were they dissatisfied with the money or the dates? Did something happen on the trip to New Japan that sort of changed their attitude about working with the company? Uh, was Scott upset about, you know, laying down for IRS? Uh, talk to me about the end here because it seems sort of abrupt. They, with the New Japan trips, you know, we, we had looked at that as sending them over as ambassadors for the WWF. They went over there and they're working in New Japan, making good money. And we let, you know, hey, you guys keep that money. We were looking forward to, as I said, kind of a, a ambassador deal. Well, New Japan working their magic saying, hey, you can come over here and work X amount of dates, make X amount of money, you don't have to be on the road all the time. You get to go home for another six weeks at a time. You spend time at home. You don't have to work and come back, and by the end of a year, you're going to make more money than you're making right now in the WWF. So combined with the money, the grind, and, man, right place, right time in Japan, they want it out. They they felt that they weren't made they weren't going to make the same money with the same schedule and they had a better deal. Scott says they got a better deal in Japan and they wanted out of here, so they took the Japanese deal. and And both Steiners say that the number one reason they left was money, but Rick says they were promised things that never happened. Do you believe that they were promised different things creatively, 
or just had different expectations monetarily? I think they probably had different expectations monetarily. And it was a time, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that, that huge money making time here in the WWF. So they probably had, uh, hopes for a lot more money than they were making. What, what do you guess they were making when they came over from WCW? Not the Bill Watts lowball offer, but before that. Maybe I have, you know what? I have no idea. I probably 150. See, I would have guessed more than that. I would have thought. 225 or better. Um, what do you think they made in their in their one year with the WWF here? If you had to guess, I have no idea. Probably they probably over 200. So you think they made more money than they made with WCW, but not as much money as they expected based on the number of dates. Not as much money as they expected in the grind. Yeah. Um, Scott says they never should have come to the WWF, and they were miserable there. Did you did you ever hear them express that to you or hear stories or rumblings of them being unhappy? You know, they they weren't no, they weren't really miserable and unhappy till the very end. And I think that once they had another offer and someplace else to go, helped make them miserable because they're sitting there now they've got something to compare it to where they were miserable in WCW that came here for greener pastures and they saw greener pastures elsewhere. So that's kind of where they started to show and get grumpy and well this now this is miserable. I can go to Japan, I can do half the dates, I can make the same money. Rick has said he didn't feel like they fit in here at the time. And I feel like that's pretty fair. You know, the WWF has a more cartoonish presentation with Money Inc. and Beverly Brothers and uh, you know, the head shrinkers, there's lots of sort of over the top gimmicks. And meanwhile, these guys are still working their old school amateur background NWA gimmick. It doesn't feel like they're a fit in a land of more cartoon and over the top characters. You know, Damien Demento is in the company at the time and Tatanka and you've got two amateur wrestlers from Michigan. Do you think that's a fair assessment that maybe it wasn't the best fit? No, I think that's why they fit so well, personally. I thought that they stood out above and beyond, uh, just pretty much above everybody else. And I thought that their style and the way that they worked, everything about what they were doing was what made them special. That's why I liked them. Let's talk about the money a little more. You know, obviously this is before guaranteed contracts, so... Is it fair to say the Steiners were on that old school 1992-93 era contract where it's we're going to pay you $50 for 13 shows or something like that? $25 for TV. And Vince really sells it on, you're going to make more with me. Do you believe that same conversation happened with the Steiners here when they're coming in? Absolutely, Vince. Vince sold them, you know, sold them the dream. And you have you have an opportunity here to be bigger than you ever could with the action figures and and the merchandise and everything else. So when they come in, do they you know when when it's when it's wrapping up, are they calling the office to express displeasure? Do they meet Vince at a TV taping and get back in his office and chop it up, or how does that confrontation go down where they're saying yeah. we're unhappy, we want to leave? It happened, you know, it happened pretty damn quick. Uh, they, they talked to JJ. JJ got him with Vince and Vince was simply saying, if you guys are unhappy, then, you know, we'll, we'll get your release. 
we'll let you move on. I don't want unhappy people here. And it happened pretty damn quick. I, I don't remember it being a long, drawn-out negotiation or anything else other than signers want to go. Um, let's move on. What's the rationale behind sometimes Vince says, no, you can't leave when you want to leave. You can leave when we want you to leave. And then other times, oh, you want to leave? Okay, here's your release. Doesn't that seem a little inconsistent? It is inconsistent. depends on which asshole hat he has on that day. Well, how can you tell which asshole hat it is so you know the right day to ask? You can't. You never can. You know, this is what I, this is what I love, you know, about Vince sometimes is he you say, you know, there there is you say I was waiting for a good time to talk to you. There is no good time to talk to me. You just spit it out, just whatever you want. Then there would be times of god damn, pal, you could have picked a better time to discuss this, couldn't you? So you you can't you there's no there is no human way to know at all. Because you don't know what's going on in his head. And you don't know if you say the instead of the, what's going to set him off and send him on another tangent. Do you um do you recall having a conversation with them on the way out about what their plan was next? Well, we knew that to us the, the plan was they were going to go to Japan and they were going to work half the date. So we wished them well and left the door open hoping they would come back at some point. They go on to work uh, a few months in 1995 for ECW, and then, of course, they're back in WCW in 96, and they win the tag titles, and they do have the singles run, and eventually they do split up and face each other. Uh, and then, in, of course, Scott would join the NWO and becomes Big Papa Pump, and uh, Rick would go on and win the tag titles with Buff Bagwell and sort of bounce around and eventually even have uh, Kenny Chaos as a tag team partner. Uh, he has a singles run for the television title and uh, even has a, a feud with Shane Douglas for the United States title. So they sort of bounce around a little bit uh, in WCW, still trying to find their way. But to me, as a tag team, they're never the same once they leave the WWF. They had that really awesome run in WCW that made me a super fan, a pretty lukewarm run in the WWE, some shots in Japan and ECW. But when they're back, with WCW in 96, it's just not the same for me. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, it, and was that during the time that they brought DiBiase in with them? Yeah, that's right. In, 90, in late 96, you see DiBiase come in and, and be their manager. Yeah, it just wasn't it wasn't the same. And I think that the injuries, had, there were rumors about Scott hurting his back and other things like that. They just, I don't think they were the same at all. Well, let's talk about um, the the famous Steiner brother ribs because we've heard a lot about these guys over the years. Tony Schiavone has talked about, and other guys, Ric Flair and others, that these guys were notorious for fucking with guys. You know, whether it was an enhancement talent or a referee, or maybe even a Butch Reed, who is a as a main roster guy, has had a lot of success in wrestling and. They would just torment the shit out of him. Do you remember any famous Steiner brother ribs you can share with us? I remember coming in one time with Scott on top of a, a table with pipes overhead in the dressing room, wrapping a giant chain around somebody's bag. And it was just such a sight 
kind of to see, like, and of course you walk on, nothing's going on here. Nothing, <laughs> nothing to see. Move along. Uh, no, nothing happening here. You know, they, best of my reaction, yeah, they did those kind of ribs. They, they were a part of, I've told the story about the Rick Rude rib. They were there in WWF during that time, which I think they kind of helped stir that one up a little bit with when I had called Rick Rude in the middle of the night is Dusty, and I thought I was talking to Rick Flair, and Rick Rude ended up at the WCW headquarters at 6 o'clock in the morning the next day. So uh, I think the signers had a had a bit of a part in stirring that one up as well. But, you know, no more than what you've already heard, man. Yeah, they 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 did like the rib. They could get away with it. And really, who the hell is going to say anything? Were they um, – do you have any memories of them with Kurt? Because I know those guys ran hard together. And uh, there's rumors that they would sometimes have fun with the guys on the road where – I heard one story at a Raw where they had a lot of Japanese talent in at Raw – they're all in there early drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and catering. And so the Steiners and Kurt go crush up a bunch of Halcyon and dump it in the coffee and then smarten up the American workers. Hey, don't drink the coffee. So eventually Vince or somebody from the office rolls by and sees all of the new Japan talent asleep in catering, just passed out. Do you recall that story or any sort of similar ribs that Kurt may have had an influence over the Steiners with? Yeah, I do. And and I actually remember the scene and it was a catering kind of on a stage area where we had uh like a stage and big drapes that closed. And see, I was told it was uh GHB that was putting the coffee. May have been a few halcyons, but yes, there were there were those of us that were told which one to drink out of and which one not to. But you saw <laughs> You saw guys, the funny thing was, man, is you saw like all these guys, it was the suits that were there that were, you know, they're all like in suits and everything and they're laying, they're not laying down, but they're on the table with their heads on their arms on the table kind of passed out and they were sleepy. It was jet lag. It's amazing to me that only in wrestling can you drug someone to the point where they pass out, and then you say, ah, oh, it's just a rib. I mean, yeah. that's that's illegal as fuck, but in wrestling, nah, it's just a rib. Any other Steiner Brothers ribs we want to talk about before we talk about the singles runs? Man, let's get on to the single run. Well, I feel like we should mention that um, when WCW goes down on the very last Nitro, which we've talked about, and it's available in our archives, Scott Steiner is the champion, but he loses the belt to Booker T. Is the reason you guys wanted... Uh, the belt off of Scott Steiner because you weren't sure that you'd be able to bring him over since he still had so much left on his contract? Or what's the rationale behind having Scott Steiner lose the belt? We wanted to have a happy ending. It was all babyface night. We had no idea at that, at that point, that day, what Steiner's contract was. We had no idea what Booker's contract was. We just wanted to have a, a babyface night. On that last Nitro... Are you guys having any sort of conversation with either Steiner brother about potentially working with the WWF in the future, or is that just not even a topic at the time? Not even a topic with anybody at the time because we we were still just doing our due diligence and still going through everything. 
we had to get, you know, we had to get this damn show done. We had to move on and go on to WrestleMania. So those conversations, we didn't have enough information to have those conversations. Yeah. So it's, it's more like, uh, Hey, thanks for the company. Good luck in your future endeavors. Now, of course, you guys didn't have that back at the last Nitro. And ultimately, Rick never comes back to mainstream. Of course, he makes a couple of shots, I think, in Japan and maybe an indie shot here or there. Uh, but I've heard Rick say he just thought, what am I doing? Because he still had a ridiculous amount of money left on his contract, and it just didn't feel like something he wanted to continue to pursue. He's surrounded by a sea of young guys, and I guess he had like a Danny Glover moment. So now, these days... Uh, Rick is a realtor and is on a school board in Atlanta, but Scott Steiner was not done. Uh, how does the whole conversation come about to bring Scott in to the fold as a single star? <laughs> well, you know, I go back and tell that story of the last Nitro first where so many people were nervous about, and when I say so many people, there there were people in the WCW side from John Laurinaitis, Arn Anderson, that were nervous about Scott doing business that night. and would, would he drop the belt? There was there was nothing. It, it was is he going to do it? Is it going to be difficult to deal with? And so on and so forth. And Arn came and got me and said, "Up, oh, Scott's got a problem with the finish." So I go in, and Scott was getting his foot taped up, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? He says, nothing. He goes, I just wanted to uh, ask a question. Can I use Medasia? Was that her name that was with him right. at the end? Right. He says, can I use Medasia in the finish? I said, well, how do you want to use her? And he wanted to do something where he ended up hitting Medasia or Booker, and it was at a time that we had a policy where no males, even accidentally, were hitting females at that time. So I said, uh, I'd rather not. If we can take it out, let, let's take it out. Let's just do a straight finish and take it from there. He said, okay, cool. I just wanted to ask. That was, see, and that's why I talk about, you know, sometimes the perception and the narrative. That was their perception of, oh, he's got a problem. No, he just asked a question about adding something to a finish. And that was a problem to them. And it wasn't a problem. It was just a suggestion that no, we couldn't do, and he didn't have, and he didn't have a problem with that. And we moved on. So for Scott, you know, coming back, we were uh, on the creative team. I believe that was something that Jim Ross, John Laurinaitis had, had worked out, and we just heard it one day. Hey, we've signed Scott Steiner. Let's go. We should mention that um, Scott says you guys tried to sign him right after the WWF buys out WCW, but of course he decides to sit out and just uh, get paid for ch chilling at the house. Who can blame him for that? And he does go to work uh, briefly with world wrestling all-stars where he defeated Nathan Jones to win the WWE world title. And of course he winds up vacating that when he joined the WWE. We haven't discussed world wrestling all-stars on the show here much. What did you guys hear about that? And what was sort of the feeling within the company about WWE? There was absolutely no feeling in the company about WWA. It was just some guy trying to do something. There was no real threat of anything because they didn't have the money. They sure as hell didn't have the infrastructure to do anything, and it was a mess before it even started. Um, so we talked about his debut a little bit, and I guess you could catch that in the archives as well. Survivor Series 2002. We'll touch on it again here briefly. 
Uh, Chris Nowinski comes out and cuts a heel promo on the New York crowd. Matt Hardy interrupts him. Uh, they're both playing to the crowd as monster heels, uh, and they call the crowd losers and stupid and looped. And so Steiner comes out to a huge pop. He's bigger than a house. He beats them both up. And um, it feels as if he's debuting as a top guy here. We talked a lot about theme music at the very beginning of the show. The theme music here is very, very similar to the music that we heard that he used in WCW with the siren at the beginning. Do you recall there being conversations about what that might sound like if he comes in? There probably was. And, you know, for the longest time until you just said that, did we not just use WCW music for him to come in? Well, that's what I wanted to ask is, you know, it feels like it's almost identical, uh, and it may not be. I'm sure one of our listeners knows. You're probably going to hear it under this show. But I guess my question is, that's not something Vince normally did. So to go back and use, you know, the old music and then before, you know, in a, in a, in a prior lifetime, they had him use his name as Scott Steiner. It's almost like, Hey, the presentation's great. Let's not change anything. Right. And that's kind of the, the feeling there. So I thought, and I could be wrong. I always thought that the music was the same because there were certain things that we bought. And that music library that WCW had, we that was part of the stuff that we bought. So if you have it, people are going to recognize it, then why not use it? Yeah, no doubt about it. They recognize it for sure. Uh, here's what the Torch said about the debut. Scott Steiner is likely going to be placed in the Raw squad in order to be a babyface challenger to Triple H early next year. With Brock turning babyface on SmackDown and Steiner as a babyface, there's a more urgent need for Steiner to fill a top babyface role on Raw. Like Michaels, but unlike RVD, Steiner isn't a long-term threat to Triple H. He's in his late 30s and has a physical ailment that prevents him from being a full-time franchise player. Again, a perfect opponent for Triple H in his eyes. What did you think about the dirt sheet sort of making the insinuation that this is a perfect opponent because he's no real threat to Triple H's spot backstage? I think it's silly. I think that, you know, he was being brought in to work with Triple H. He was being brought in in a babyface role. And let's see what we've got. We didn't know. We weren't really sure of his uh, physical ability at that point. You know, still, man, he hadn't been tested. He'd been out of the out of the business for a little while. So we wanted to get him in the ring and see what we had there. At this time, are you guys putting guys through a physical before you would sign them to a contract or no? At this time, I don't think we were yet. There was a small physical, but they had they had to do their their medical stuff. But some of them, at that time, I think they had to do the physical with their own doctors and send all that stuff in. We covered this on the um, Survivor Series 02 episode, but I want to touch on it again here because you sort of insinuated that a lot of people thought in the office that Steiner could be a bit of a problem. Do you recall any of the old guard? You know, of course, you were there and Vince was there. Who else would have been there that was in the office when Steiner came through as a tag team in 92, 93? Only me and Pat. Well, that, I, I think that's what's so interesting is, you know, the perception precedes these guys. And so Scott Steiner was interviewed by the WWE website. Cool. Go ahead. Well, but but the perception wasn't from us. The perception was from the guys that had worked with him in WCW. Right. The perception came from like you know the Arns and the uh, Laurinaitises and the guys that came from WCW. 
I just find it interesting that, you know, apparently, according to the rumor and innuendo, he was allowed to run rough shot down there, but he didn't really do that here before. So maybe you and Vince and Pat don't have any concern of that because you never saw that behavior, right? We didn't. No, we didn't. So he's interviewed by the WWE website and asked about the speculation that he's going to be a problem in the locker room, of course, based on the crazy stories from WCW. Scott responds, how the fuck do they know that? If they're not backstage, how do they know whether or not I'm a problem? That's a rumor or a label that people try to put on me, but I always keep to myself. I don't bother anybody. Nobody bothers me. Fuck no. I don't talk to anybody. So how can I be a locker room cancer? And Wade Keller would write, Steiner's being truthful in the sense that he's kept to himself early in his WWE appearances, not shacking up with any clicks or being overly friendly or political. He has kept to himself for the most part and not tried to cozy up or schmooze anyone in his few backstage appearances. Is that the way you remember it? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Um, what do you think of Scott's change in appearance from his prior run here? Of course, he's a lot different than the last time he worked for the WWF. Uh, not a, a huge change in his physique, but obviously he's a little bigger. But now he's cut his, his hair short. He's dyed it blonde. He's grown a goatee. He's looking a lot like superstar Billy Graham here. I thought he looked great. The I go back to the very first time that I saw Scott with the new look was the, the night that he debuted it. And we all ended up in a Pittsburgh Holiday Inn bar. It was so drastic and so dramatic that when he walked in, all of us on our side, because we hadn't seen Nitro that night, were looking and going, who in the hell is that? Because he looked he looked like a star. He had the short hair and the bleach blonde hair and was just um jack to the max. So I thought it was a good look for him because it set him it set him apart from everybody else. He got rid of the the mullet and all that good stuff and he looked different and he looked like somebody. I should mention here that uh Scott has been open about the fact that before he came in he had nerve damage in his foot, and WWE was well aware of it, but still made him a good offer. When did you guys first hear about his drop foot issue? Uh, I first heard about it when uh, the last Nitro. Okay. That was the first time that I was made aware of it. And, of course, the guys like Laurinaitis knew about it because he had worked with him in WCW. When you find out about it at Nitro, are one of the boys chatting you up about that? Is Laurinaitis telling you that? How do you find out at that Nitro? Yeah, Laurinaitis and Arn told us about it that he had had this drop foot, and uh, I, I, I think you know there were always whispers around that he had had this issue going on, but it really didn't seem to hamper him that much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, when he actually comes in. They do a thing where both Bischoff, who was the Raw GM, and Stephanie McMahon, who's the SmackDown GM, are trying to get Scott to sign with them in their show, and Scott eventually chooses Raw. And uh, Scott made some sort of sexual type advance at Stephanie, which she declined. What are your memories of that angle? <laughs> um, just something, you know, we had done, it was similar to the, you know, old Randy Savage. When Randy Savage came into the WWF years ago and all the managers vying for his services and who's going to be Randy's manager wanted to try and recreate that a little bit with Scott here in that both general managers, Raw and SmackDown, wanted Scott Steiner on their show because when he debuted, it was a, it was a Raw 
and SmackDown shared show on Survivor Series, so no one really knew where is he going to end up. He didn't say he was Raw, didn't say he was SmackDown. So just to create that buzz as to, oh, my God, where the hell is he going to end up? Um, did a lot of sexual stuff with Stephanie McMahon at that time, so it was a natural for the big booty daddy to do something with Stephanie. Um, did Vince write that? Because we, we've had sort of some freestyling here on the show uh, that makes me think that Vince has sort of an interesting relationship with Stephanie in the way he writes some of the TV. Could that big booty daddy get in that booty right there? <laughs> Look at the big booby baby. That's what I'm talking about. And the big booty daddy and the big booby baby. Now that's money. Do you smell it? Do you smell it? Yeah, I smell it. Something like that. We should just roll credits. Show's over, folks. It's not going to get any better than that. Uh Scott said in hindsight he would have preferred to have gone to SmackDown, but they wanted him on Raw so he could wrestle Triple H. Does he express that one way or another? Not to us, no. And it was it was a creative team. I was working on both Raw and SmackDown during this time. So it was pretty much him coming in and, and going right into a program with Triple H on Raw. So December 16th on Raw, they're doing Triple H Appreciation Night. This is the night after he won the world title from Shawn Michaels at Armageddon. And Triple H says it's hard to be humble when you're the best and starts naming off all the people he's beaten. And then Scott Steiner's music hits. He comes out and tells Triple H that he's never beaten him. And Bischoff reveals that they had an understanding. And Scott said his contract says he gets a title shot or he's out of here. They go back and forth on the mic for a while before Triple H leaves. And a week later... On Raw, Triple H calls out Scott and challenges him to an arm wrestling match. Whose idea was the arm wrestling match? <laughs> it was Vince's. And the philosophy behind it was going back to the, again, go, with Scott, man, so much of it was based on a lot of superstar Billy Graham and a lot of things that we had done in the past that had worked big time. So, it was a way that Triple H and Scott can have a physical encounter without having a physical encounter. Get them in the ring together without having to have them beat the shit out of each other. So it, you build up, and it's almost like building up for a match to get to the arm wrestling. And uh, it's just an old-school tactic that really fit with two guys with this kind of physique. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up physique here, too, because Triple H was known as the body guy in the WWE at the time, and especially when he comes back from his quad injury in January of 2002, he's more jacked than ever. And then in comes Scott Steiner, and Scott winds up winning this arm wrestling match and slams Triple H's arm down three more times after it. So did Triple H express any sort of concern to not being, because this is something he takes a lot of pride in as a former bodybuilder, What's his feelings about Scott Steiner and the way he's made to look very quickly losing this uh, arm wrestling match in very dominating fashion? He's a heel. That's what heels do. So, yeah, that was that was not an issue at all. That was the damn finish of the arm wrestling match. You're not going to bring Scott Steiner in and, and have him lose an arm wrestling match. So that was not even remotely an issue. I should mention, just uh, I skipped it briefly here. On December 14th in Jacksonville, Scott Steiner beat John Cena. That's not something that I thought 
why I would have ever seen that those guys really crossed paths, but they did. Uh, so Jacksonville, Florida, December 14th. Um, let's talk about where we're going from here with Triple H because we're clearly building towards a, a title shot. Wade Keller would write this in the torch. He wrote, Triple H was scheduled to face Scott Steiner in their first singles match this past weekend in Honolulu, Hawaii. However, mainly due to Hunter's nagging leg injury and partly due to Steiner's lack of conditioning for singles matches, the January 3rd Honolulu match was changed to Steiner teaming with Rob Van Dam against Triple H and Batista. Hunter did the job in the match, submitting to Steiner after Shawn Michaels interfered with Sweet Chin Music on Triple H. And the same tag match took place uh, Sunday in Colorado Springs, but ended with RVD pinning Batista. Michaels was not a part of that match. Hunter and Steiner engaged in mind games, with Hunter mocking Steiner's mannerisms and then playing chicken to Steiner in the ring. Their actual wrestling exchanges were limited. Uh, chat me up about this situation where allegedly... They're not as confident in Scott's ability to work a singles match here, so they call an audible. Well, there was concern there because Scott wasn't in, you know, he really wasn't in ring shape, and he was in great shape, but he hadn't been in the ring on a regular basis. So they, to protect him, they did tag matches just to make sure that you know he could tag in and out and get the best out of him. He just wasn't ready. Who has these concerns and who's saying he's not ready? Is Triple H saying, man, he's not ready? Triple H is saying it. The agents are saying it. And you can just watch, you know, the matches. He's running out of gas a lot faster. And, you know, he's just, he's a step off. So he's got to get, and that's strictly from being, you know, goddamn, he was out for a long time. And now he's coming back in, and now he's he's going back into a regular schedule. And unless you're in the ring working, you know, three, four, five times a week, it takes a while to get your ring legs back under you. Which explains why you're not putting him on TV a lot in matches. You're doing arm wrestling and what you would do on January 6th, which is a pose down. Uh, old school Rick Rude Ultimate Warrior style, this time, though, with Triple H and Scott Steiner. Uh, of course, Triple H picks the judges, and they vote for him to win, and they all attack Scott afterwards, but he quickly gets the better of them. What do you remember about the pose down on Raw? Well, it was something that you could do that we knew. <laughs> Again, going, stealing more pages out of that superstar Billy Graham playbook. And, and you go back and you look at the stuff that Billy Graham did with Tony Atlas and and different things through the years. This was that old time, two big muscle heads coming together and they're going to collide. So you go after what they both take pride in, their body and how they look. And this was an opportunity because Steiner looked great, man. Just don't, you know, don't shoot the legs. And uh, the pose down was a way for him to make make him look great and come out on top. There's a line in here, I believe, um, where Triple H says something like, you're built for show, I'm built to go. Was that the way the locker room sort of looked at it too, or is that Triple H sort of convincing himself that, hey, no, I don't look as good as that, but I can still wrestle, and this guy can't wrestle, so I've got the better body for wrestling. Well, yeah, that's something a heel would say when they lose. Well, but I'm talking about real life, brother. It was written for him okay. by a writer. So Triple H wasn't in on the writing at the time? No. Okay. All right. I guess what we read all these years about him being in on the meetings is 
Bullshit. Uh, January 13th on Raw. No, he was in on production meetings. He was not in on creative meetings. Okay. Uh, they're supposed to do a uh, bench press competition. I'm sure this was written for him as well. Uh, Steiner says he's going to warm up with 585 pounds, and then Triple H comes down in a suit. They go back and forth on the mic a few minutes, uh, and then Scott comes down to the ring, and they start to fight. Steiner rips off Triple H's clothes down to his underwear, and Triple H leaves. This is very old-school Ricky Steamboat Ric Flair, is it not? This is old school. I don't know about Steve. Did Steamboat and Flair do something like this? Okay. Uh, Royal Rumble 2003, January 19th in Boston. Uh, I'm just going to keep reading results, and you're going to say, no, Triple H was great. I don't know what this is. I didn't say Triple Scott H was great. Was great I, didn't say, I, I asked you a question. I, I, you know, a lot of guys have done the clothes rip-off thing, and uh, Ric Flair's made it famous. And Triple H's favorite wrestler is? Ric Flair. Okay. Scott beat Triple H by DQ. Uh, at the Royal Rumble, of course, we remember that. So Triple H retains. Here's what Keller wrote of the match. Just before their match, Triple H faced off against Scott Steiner. Steiner, whose house shows have received poor reviews from those in attendance, showed that he isn't physically capable of carrying his end of a match at this point in his career. The stereotypical assumption would be that a rough and cynical Boston crowd would love Steiner's self-absorbed tough guy attitude the same way New York Giants fans love talented but bonehead rookie Jeremy Shockey. Instead, one Steiner showed he couldn't deliver by moving around the ring gingerly and looking shaky during suplexes. The crowd ate him up. Triple H's body looked good, but the price he is paying for his obsession with bodybuilding is taking a toll on the health of the company he earns paychecks from. His injuries, not at all unrelated to his obsession with being as big as possible, have limited his ability to carry someone with Steiner's limitations. Triple H's obsession with only wrestling proven name brands and main events rather than taking pride in elevating up-and-comers as taking a toll on the quality of his big matches and, therefore, his drawing power. Rather than surround himself with opponents who can work circles around him athletically and whom he can teach a thing or two about psychology and main event prudence, he has stuck himself with tired veterans such as The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, and now Scott Steiner. It's not working. The booing of Steiner didn't stop once the match ended. After the match, when in character, he threw the title belt on Triple H's body, and the crowd booed. When Steiner raised his arms to get cheers from the crowd, they booed again. When he stood on the second rope a few seconds later, hoping that he was high enough for the crowd to see who he was, they still booed. They weren't just booing the DQ finish, they were booing his performance and Triple H's inability to cover for him. What do you think of Wade Killer's comments here of this Royal Rumble disaster? Unfortunately, true, and it was everybody looking at it going, wow, is he more injured than we were led to believe? You know, like we had heard he had the back. We knew he had the drop foot, but it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't there to be able to to carry a singles match, and we had tried doing the stuff, getting him ready by putting him in house shows prior to that. It stunk. It just stunk to how it was a clash. It was a clash of styles and it sucked. And that audience, I think you could have put that match, you know, anywhere in the country and people would have shit on it, not just Boston. 
Yeah, it's an interesting deal here because uh, it feels like there's a lot of blame to pass around here. Uh, a lot of people over the years have accused Triple H of purposely burying Scott Steiner in this match, and they say that this match pretty much killed Steiner right away, and he never really recovered. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't think he ever did. Uh, I think that it was it was that first it was the first big major taste. You know, you go from the Survivor Series with him suplex and Matt and Nowinski all over the place to this and the cliche of, and then the bell rang, rang through here. Um, there's a, a lot of bot spots here for Steiner, including one time when he does a move to triple H and he falls over the fans start booing all these botches. Do you think Vince had buyer's remorse during this match? Yeah, I do. I really do. I think that he looked at it and felt that he had, I think that he felt he was sold a different athlete than what he got. And he started thinking that there were, there was maybe something more underneath the surface that we didn't know. And that Scott was telling us that his, his foot was better than it was and his back was better than it was. So you, you go with what you, what you're being told. And I think deep down inside, we really wanted this. We wanted him. We needed him. We needed another big baby face. And it's like, shit, it's not there. When, when the guys come back through the curtain, what's been saying to him? <sighs> get in shape. God damn, pal. Um, yeah, get in shape and are you okay? Because there was there was real concern here for for his well being, man. If you're not if you're not good and you're really nursing an injury and there's something else wrong, let's get it fixed. And that was his concern. So it was do is it a matter of are you not shaking all the ring rust off yet? Or is this do we need more time to get in shape, or is there an injury I need to know about? Um, were you watching this in Gorilla with Vince? Now, I don't know if Vince was there, but uh, I watched it in Gorilla, yeah. What's a guy like The Undertaker saying about this match? I think all the top guys that are hoping that Scott's going to come in and, and be able to do something or saying, damn, he's not ready. It won uh, the Observer's worst match that year. And um, Scott says soon after this match, WWE asked him to take a steroid test. And he said he'd be happy to just as long as Triple H comes and pick him up in the limo and they'll go do it together. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, do you know if there's any truth to that? I've never heard that. You've never heard him say that, or you didn't know that you guys asked him to test after this? I don't know if they asked him to test, and I never heard him say uh, they go on limo together or anything like that. It's a hell of a line, though, is it not? Oh, I love it. One of the questions I've had here is when I hear about a guy being tested like this, like we've heard uh, through the years on the WCW side that they signed Ray Trailer to a bigger contract than they really should have, and they regretted it fairly quickly. It was one of those bar deals where somebody got a hold of Bischoff after he'd been drinking, and he made some promises maybe he shouldn't have. But they're still honoring it. But the way they're trying to work around it is they test the ever-loving shit out of Trailer, hoping they can pop him for something and therefore have an out for his contract. 
Do you remember Vince ever having buyer's remorse like that and saying, well, just test him because we know there's an out? <laughs> um, in later, you know, at that time, no, we couldn't because we had the, it was an independent test where it was administered by a third party. So we had no hand in the test by this point. Well, hang on now. You said in later years there, so you started a story we need to finish of. No, I'm saying that in later years, because of those kind of accusations and things like that, he completely removed himself from it. Whether you, you know, people will always going to say that. Okay, but did it happen back in the day then? Maybe it's not happening in this era, 80s, 90s. Oh, as far as Vince thinking that there were drugs, yes, absolutely. If there was, if there was suspicion or there was reason for cause that they thought that somebody was on drugs, hell yeah, you test them. Definitely. Scott's working uh, a lot after this. On January 20th, he works with uh, Batista and gets a win by DQ. He's teaming in Seoul with Kane to take on Triple H and Batista. Uh, he gets a win over Christian in Tokyo. And then on Raw, he gets a win over Chris Jericho to become the number one contender for the world title on February 3rd. I find that kind of interesting that he's still in number one contender matches it feels like at this point the contract and the reputation is what's warranting him there, maybe more so than performance, right? We had, you know, we had a story arc planned out for him, and we had written out, you know, well in advance for him to do this program with Triple H, and we were try, still trying to get him, give him the benefit of the doubt and trying to, you know, say, okay, man, let's get there. We're going to give you time. We're going to stick with this. So we stuck with it. The Torch wrote, the only event that even fell into the same league of embarrassment as the anniversary special was Steiner's pathetic performance at the Royal Rumble. Actually, the officials who went to bat for Steiner may even be more embarrassed by his performance since they ignored the general consensus in the business that Steiner is too banged up to be a main event full-time player. Since his embarrassing performance, Steiner has been cast as the whipping boy for Triple H's new faction, which would make one think WWE has learned its lesson. However, it looks as if WWE is going to look to milk its investment in Steiner for whatever it can by putting on another pay-per-view main event against Triple H this month. This gives Steiner and Triple H a chance to redeem themselves, but it also puts them in a position to have yet another embarrassing situation. And if they fail to redeem themselves, one can only assume that the heat won't fall on Hunter, which means Steiner's career as a main eventer could be very short-lived. Feels like a pretty fair assessment by Wade. Would you agree? Unfortunately, I would agree. And, you know, there, you always want to give talent the benefit of the doubt because you always, at least from a creative standpoint, you say, okay, if we just give it a little bit more time, man, they're going to come around. And I do, I do think, frankly, that the second outing was a lot better than the first. And by this time, they'd had a chance to work together several times, but still, Scott, unfortunately, was you know probably a half step behind what he should have been. Let's talk about it. It's it's no way out, the uh, second outing you're talking about. It's February 23rd. It's in Montreal. And, of course, Triple H beat Scott Steiner again to retain the world title. Uh, and this match doesn't get talked about as much as their Rumble match, and it is much better as a whole. How was it received backstage that, hey, at least it's not as bad, but I'm glad we're done with this? Well, we were all glad we were done with it, and and it wasn't it wasn't as bad as the first one. So, the feeling was that okay, so he may have it in him. Let's try something else, and let's maybe move on to different opponents and see what else we can do here. So this is the end of their feud. 
Uh, it's his first big feud, and Steiner gets steamrolled. Did you ever talk to Triple H or Steiner about the way this feud sort of came to an end and their run together? I think both were relieved that it came to an end. Um, there wasn't chemistry there. There just wasn't, there just wasn't any chemistry there. Hunter was glad to be, be done with it. I think that he thought that he could have gotten a lot more out of it and he was disappointed. And I think that Scott just felt that, uh, he couldn't work with Triple H and that it was oil and water. And he was glad he wanted to move on with a worker, somebody else. Of course. You know, everything happens for a reason. The next night, they do a battle royal to name a new number one contender. And Scott Steiner's in it. But, of course, the guy who would get the win here on February 24th, 2003, and become the number one contender is Booker T. And I say that's interesting because we all know that Booker T would go on to work a program with Triple H all the way through WrestleMania 19 for the World Heavyweight title. And that feud is dripping with controversy the match happens on march 30th booker wins this on february 24th i guess my question is you know i know we like the phrase things change conrad hypothetically was the original plan to have scott steiner and triple h at wrestlemania (laughs) i'm gonna give you a tony shivani I don't remember. I know that the Scott Steiner and Triple H, you know, there was talk at some point in there, you know, do we even switch the title to Scott Steiner? You know, what would happen there? And things do change. And obviously we didn't do that. Glad we didn't. But um, it feels weird, though, that you would have a January pay-per-view and it's a DQ finish. Then you have a February pay-per-view and it's clean and that's it. If we're only a month out from WrestleMania, normally we would have a longer build than just a four-week build to WrestleMania. It felt like maybe the first one could be DQ, the second one could be a screw job, and then WrestleMania is, hey, if I can't win the belt, I'll retire, or some such silly shit, some sort of stipulation, a reason to have one more match, and then you get the feel-good moment of Scott Steiner becoming champion. Of course, that didn't happen, but it doesn't feel like the plan was all along Booker T., if he wins a fucking battle royal a month prior, right? No, that battle royal was planned eight months before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> eight months before, before, so that we only have four weeks to plug a world title match at WrestleMania. No, it was probably his knee jerk reaction. I'm just I, going back and looking. I'm I don't remember all the the stuff of what it was after that because once you got past that first Royal Rumble match, it was like, oh God, this isn't going to work. But you don't remember what the plan would have been for Hunter at 19. I do think it probably was Steiner. It's crazy to think about, man. I mean, it really is. It, it it is, and you know, it, it also goes to just show you, man. Even even then, it was changing on a dime, and what kind of mood Vince would come in and say, "God, oh, God damn it, I'm not feeling it today." Where the? Why don't we put the title on the brawler? That might even be better. And then somebody go, "I think that's a fucking great idea, Vince." It kicks fucking head off. I love it. And you're staring at each other rewriting the shows for the next eight weeks because somebody made a stupid suggestion. It's sort of interesting that, um, you know, this is WrestleMania 19 we're talking about here. And 10 years prior, 
the pitch was let's have Steiner win the Royal Rumble and then main event WrestleMania for the world title. And, and it doesn't and happen. And win it all. And, and it doesn't happen. And 10 years later, he's in a prime world title, big time program match at Royal Rumble. And it does so poorly that come WrestleMania 19, 10 years after the first one we just discussed, he's not even on the card. Did you want to see it? It's just, it's so interesting. It feels like Scott Steiner is one of those stories about, you know, you sort of made the assertion earlier about the Beverly Brothers, but I think you could argue that Scott Steiner had the worst fucking timing in the history of wrestling. I could agree with that. But I actually, you know, I mean, is that after seeing those two matches, would you have wanted to see another one at WrestleMania? No, I'm not, I'm not armchair quarterbacking the decision. I'm just saying it's interesting how he was supposed to be, you know, based on the office push, they wanted him in a big spot at nine. And then they wanted him for the world title at 19, 10 years later. And it happens neither time. Exactly. Uh, of course, after this, and I don't mean to disparage him at all because I'm a, a big Lance Storm fan, but after working with Triple H in the main events, he's working uh, with Lance Storm on the loop and Christian and Chris Nowinski. And I'm not disparaging any of those guys, but it's certainly a level down from pay-per-view main events. How is this received by Scott Steiner? I mean, it's a clear message to him and the rest of the locker room. He's no longer a top guy, right? Well, I don't think he was really happy about it. I think that Scott wanted to be, you know, immediately put in a in a different program with somebody different. But I think the abruptness of, wow, this didn't work. Now you got to change plans. Now, now you got to change plans. It takes time because other people are already in different programs. So, you, okay, let's keep him out there. Let's keep him working. So that hopefully this ring rust or whatever it is can get knocked off, and hopefully we can find somebody that he does have chemistry with that we can do something with. March seventeenth, they do a Raw in St. Louis, and we see Christian and um, Chris Jericho team up to beat Scott and Test. Uh, and Test, of course, has a manager in Stacy Keebler. She gets knocked off the apron and falls into Scott's arms. Test is, of course, distracted by this and gets pinned. Eventually, that sets up a feud in the future for both of these guys. Whose idea was it to put Test and Scott in a feud? Uh, I believe that was Brian Gewertz, who you know he was he was a fan <laughs> he was a fan of all those guys, and adding Stacy to the mix hopefully was going to dress it up some. No doubt. Uh, April 14th, Chris Nowinski and Scott Steiner engage in an in-ring debate over whether or not the United States should have invaded Iraq. Uh, that That's a real sentence I just read. Uh, and then Nowinski calls out three-minute warning who help attack Steiner. Whose idea was it to have Scott Steiner in a debate? Because that's fucking hilarious. Brian Gewertz, I blame you, and I know you're listening, so send your hate tweets to Brian. Well, listen, I think it's hilarious. I mean, it was hilarious. I, I'm a big fan of Scott Steiner's promos, you know, um, and the way he mispronounces words when he's really fired up. You know, you're out here trying to get simpy from the people, and I've got a 141 and a third chance of winning. I mean, just there's so much ridiculousness that is in a Scott Steiner promo. I'm a super fan of that. Um, 
you guys are working. He does math too. He does. It's it's <laughs> tremendous. Um, it's sort of interesting to see how he's bouncing around here. Test gets a win over him in Ontario. La Resistance beat Scott and Test together. We haven't talked a lot about La Resistance. I don't know when we will again. What can you tell us about Rene Dupree and Sylvain? Oh God, I like Rene Dupree. Um, Rene Dupree is a product of too much too soon. He was 19 years old. Uh, his father was Emile Dupree, the famous promoter and wrestler. I remember Emile Dupree as a wrestler as a kid, but from Nova Scotia and the Maritimes. So Rene had the size, the look. Uh, man, he was French. French, not French Canadian. And just had it all, man. I mean, he just had it all. And it was a far, I mean, we pushed too hard too soon. He wasn't ready for it. And then the idea to kind of get him introduced to the audience was to put him with Sylvain Grenier, I believe is his name. And Sylvain, in my opinion, just never had it. But Vince liked him because he took a hell of an ass whooping from Chris Jericho in Montreal one time, and I mean took a hell of an ass whooping backstage and didn't complain and came up right afterwards and thanked everybody, and Vince was like, God damn, I love him, and made him the evil referee. But Savon didn't, uh, I just don't think he was right for this business. And Rene Dupree, because he was young, very naive, had never really been around locker rooms and things like that, man, he got he got blistered. And he reacted wrong to things, um, had never been ribbed, had never really been in a lot of social situations. But a really nice kid, really nice kid, just too much too soon. Um, you're going to be mad here, but I guess I should ask. Lots of rumor and innuendo that Sly dated Pat Patterson. Do you want to address that? Uh, I don't know if he did or not. Uh, during the time, uh, well, Louis was gone during this time. Uh, he was from Montreal, so of course that assumption is going to be there. So because they because they were friends and because uh, they well, travel, Pat traveled with him, of course people are going to say that. I to say yes or no, I can't tell you that. I never went on a date with him. Well, did you ever have conversation with him, or did you rib him about it? No, I never. No, I never did. Were the boys ribbing uh, Sly or Pat about it? I don't know if they ribbed Sly about it. but you know, See, uh, Sly, because, like I said, Sly wasn't made for this business. And Sly got a break because maybe because his friendship of Pat being in the right place at the right time that I needed somebody to get the shit kicked out of him by Jericho. Um, he was there. He was right there. I mean, it, it was a moment where... Vince said, what if he beats the shit out of somebody backstage? He said, okay, great. And I said, uh, you work, right? He said, yes. I said, okay, let's go do this. And Jericho just killed him. And Vince was like, oh, my God, what a great ass whooping. God, and he sold so great. The reason he sold so great was because he had shit to sell. Jericho beat the shit out of him. Um, And then the rest of it was Vince. So, But the fact that he was... French Canadian from Montreal. He hung out with Pat. Of course, people, there's going to be rumors there. But you're calling bullshit on him. I'm not calling bullshit on him. I'm saying that I, 
do I know? Do I, do I say that Pat Patterson, that was his, uh, they went out? I have no idea. I went out with, I had drinks with him. Does that, does that, well, here's say what, that here's I dated him? You, you've often said that Pat Patterson's one of your best friends, and now you're he not is. sure who he lives with. Like, there's a rumor they lived together for a while. Oh my God, I have no idea if they did or not. If they did, that was news to me, secret to me. So you're saying Pat would kayfabe you about his uh, relationships? I never had a discussion with him about who the hell he lived with or who may or may not have lived with him after Louis passed. Uh, as far as I know, he lived alone. He lived with his sister. Well, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just saying he knows. Well, I, I mean, but but you're like I give you an answer. You say, well, well, why don't you know? I don't if well, if there's no. nothing there because there's rumor and innuendo that people say this shit because Pat's gay and they see another guy that he broke in. Well, that guy has to be gay. That's not fair. No, I totally agree with that. That's not fair. But they travel together, and according to the rumor and innuendo, they room together and once upon a time live together. Well, you and I are friends in real life. You know who I'm dating. Um, it's not a secret. So, yeah, I don't know if they if he ever lived there with Pat. No, I I have no idea. Pat lived in Montreal during the summer and Fort Lauderdale during the winter. Do you think that any of the boys treated Sly unfairly because they jumped to the conclusion or made the assumption that he had some sort of inappropriate relationship with Pat? Absolutely, and I also think that. But what what compounded that was, in my opinion, I don't think that he he was good enough to be in the spot he was in. I don't think he was. I don't think he was good. I don't think that. Other than that ass whooping by Jericho, I don't think that he was ready for any of that. I don't think that uh, the tag team that they were good there. Sly wasn't good on his own, and. The boys saw that the fact that he was even on the roster was because of a friendship with Pat. Judgment Day, May 18th. La Resistance would beat Scott and Test when Test accidentally kicked Scott in the face. Uh, and then they're working together again the next night on Raw. A few days after that, we would see Triple H get another win over Scott to retain the world title. And then uh, Scott is working uh, the loop with Rico and Lance Storm. And on May 30th, he teams with Johnny Jeter to beat Chris Canyon and Doug Basham for OVW. How does this OVW shot come to be? OVW, because it was our training ground in Louisville, Kentucky, was something that we would do. They had uh, Six Flags there in Louisville, Kentucky, and they used to do big shows all the time. And so from time to time, we would schedule certain stars to go down and work with the up-and-coming developmental trainees, and it was Scotty's time. June 6th in Nottingham, England, Scott would team with Kevin Nash to beat Triple H and Chris Jericho. Seems like a fun match. Uh, and then eventually we see Scott and Test break up. Uh, of course, they were a tag team, but no longer now that Test has started to treat Stacy poorly. Big Booty Daddy's having nothing to do with that. So bad blood goes down on June 15th. And the deal here is the winner between Scott Steiner and Test is going to earn Stacy's managerial services. Of course, Scott gets the win. There's a fairly memorable moment in this match that's become wrestling legend. At one point in the match, Scott tries to jump off the apron onto Test and just falls on his face. Test tries to cover it for him. Uh, is it safe to say that the bloom is totally off the rose for Scott and his WWE run here by this point? I think this was the low point where we kind of hit the bottom of the pool. 
And th- this is another thing that just kind of gets me sometimes. The reaction of people that would watch that, and I think most people when they watch it would laugh at it and go, ah, look, he fell flat on his face. It was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. It, and, and you're, I just, you're I, grinning ear to ear as you say that. No, cause I look at it differently. I was, it was so sad because you don't want that. You look, you look at somebody and you go, God, man, here was, here was the guy that I want to make WWF champion. Here was, here was this guy that, that had done so much, an incredible athlete. And, and that's what people, when you go look up, you know, videos of Scott Steiner, that's what they see. And, you know, it's not fair, but yes, that was, that was hitting the bottom of the pool. Uh, they do a no DQ match on Raw on June 30th where Tess the Jericho beat Scott and Stacy Keebler. How did Stacy like working with Scott? She liked it because she was working with Tess and her and Tess were dating at the time. So she, she was having, she was having a good time during this run because her and Tess were an item. Um, I gotta say, is Stacy Keebler the most roll tied in the history of WWE at that point? I will tell you about the first time I ever saw Stacy Keebler in person was at the last Nitro and um, Jerry Briscoe and I, called Vince. We went in the production office and said, Vince, if we don't hire one person out of this entire company, we have to find something for Stacey Keebler. She is striking and you'll go crazy if you see her in person. Television doesn't do her justice. To see her in person just... um and probably, you know, it's the smile and the nice personality and everything else, but outstanding. And Vince's reaction to her was? Which one is she? He didn't know. Once he meets her, though, is he as enamored as you thought he might be? Yes. <laughs> yes. Boy, this Good is like- God, look at those legs. They go on forever. Bruce, get Billy Gibbons on the phone. They're redoing that song they do. You know, the one about she's got those things. Yes. Yeah. True story. What, he asked for Billy Gibbons for real? Yeah, we. I did pitch Billy to, to redo do another video with Stacy for oh, legs right. and redo legs. That's awesome. July 7th, we see uh, Scott is now wrestling on Sunday Night Heat. And he beats Ruffy Silverstein. What's your favorite Ruffy Silverstein match? Uh, the time that he worked with the Golden Terror in uh, Liverpool. That's a main event anywhere in the world. Yes. Uh, July 11th in Omaha, Scott would team with Maven to beat a very young Randy Orton and Lance Storm. We haven't talked about Maven a lot here on the show, if any. Any Maven stories you want to drop on us? You know, Maven is just kind of a sad story. It's, it's horrible. He went through that first tough enough and, and came out, and we really tried to do something with him, even have an undertaker put him over and do some crazy shit with him, just trying to, to bring it out of him. But Maven was somebody that 
unfortunately, when you get TV types and production people that don't understand the wrestling business, they pick him because he has a good story and he looks good. Oh, God, he's got a wonderful story and he looks so good there. But he's, he was missing, he was missing that intangible it factor. And I don't think he really loved the business. So there you go. I'm sure we'll talk about him another time. Of course, uh, at this point, Scott started bouncing around. On the 14th of July, he would team with Kevin Nash and Trish Stratus to beat Stephen Richards, Test, and Victoria. A couple of weeks after that, he's back on Raw, teaming with Booker to beat Test and Christian. Uh, they make a trip through uh, Melbourne and Sydney, where Scott's getting wins uh, over Test and Christian, and he drops a match to Test as well in the process. Uh, on Raw, Randy Orton beats him on August 4th in Vancouver. Uh, and then he does a mixed tag a week later with Miss Jackie and Rico getting the win over Scott Steiner and Stacy Keebler. Can't believe that's a real thing. Um, Randy Orton goes on a tear the 15th, 16th, and 17th, getting wins over Scott Steiner each time. And uh, then on uh, Raw on our August 18th, they do winner gets Stacy. And uh, this, of course, is Test and Scott again. And before the match, Tess tells Stacy when he wins, he's going to treat her differently than before. He says the difference is he's going to treat her like a slut. So, of course, Tess wins. Uh, you guys could never get away with, I'm going to treat you like a slut. Who wrote this? This is not the Russo era. Is Vince McMahon behind this genius? Oh, God. Yeah, this was this was during the, yeah, that's not how you treat her. He's going to treat her like his own little slut. I'm going to do with you what I want to do. You go through the highs and lows. We had to be, we had to be sophisticated. God damn, I want sophisticated writing. We must speak the king's English. And then he's not going to treat her the way he wants to. He's going to treat her. Say it. Say it. He's going to treat her like a slut. Again, I go back to which hat he's wearing that day and if he's eating or not. <sighs> August 24th, we see Scott get a win over Mike Knox. I mention this because this is Sunday Night Heat, and it's the heat before SummerSlam. So this year, the year of his debut, after main eventing for the world title with Triple H at Royal Rumble, he's not on WrestleMania or SummerSlam. That's got to be a major income situation for him, is it not? I realize he still gets the downside, but if you're not on the two biggest shows, you're not having a banner year financially either, are you, Bruce? I'm sure he was having a good year, but you're right. No, it wasn't a banner year financially, I think, for what he was anticipating, for what he was really hoping for. And it wasn't what we were hoping for out of him either. Kind of, you know, it works both ways there, and it just wasn't, just, God, it wasn't working. Scott gets wins on all the house shows over test in late August and early September, and they even do a, a shot through Huntsville where Scott gets a win over Stephen Richards. Let's fast forward to the 21st of September. It's Unforgiven 03. The gist here is if Scott wins, he gets Stacy back. But if Test wins, Scott becomes his manservant for 30 days. Well, Test wins after Stacy tries to help Scott, but it backfires, and uh, Test requested that the team be put back together. Any memories of how this comes down? Yeah, what the hell do we do with them? Well, they were better when they were together, and we had Stacy there to play with. You're right. Put them back together. How fucking stupid is that? <laughs> Pretty fucking stupid, man. And 
it's it's salvaging. And sometimes, you know, you heard the term you got to fish or cut bait. And we were, we, in my opinion, we were doing nothing. We were doing neither. Just kind of trying to make it come along, keep coming. Yeah, we're um, we're running out of steam here, and uh, it's an interesting time in the company, especially when I can break out a name like this. September twenty second, uh, he gets a win uh, on Heat over Crowbar. That's not a name that I thought we'd be covering today. A week later, Devin Storm. You got a you got a, a Crowbar story for us? I love Crowbar. I, well, let me put it this way: I love Devin Storm, and I like I like how he reinvented himself. He was an excellent worker. If he had three more inches on him, he would have been a top guy. Um, it's like Thank four you for five, doing that. <laughs> there's four or five ways I could go <laughs> given the conversation we just had, but I'm going to keep going. Go uh, for it. So, no, we're good. So, <laughs> Stop. Go. Uh, keep going. Uh, September 29th on Raw, the Dudley uh-huh. boys beat Scott and Tess to retain. Uh, Scott turned heel on Stacy after the match and hit her with a belly-to-belly suplex. Uh, you couldn't do that on TV today. And this is shouldn't have done it on TV then. Yeah, was she scared to take this move? I mean, Scott's known to uh, injure some folks here, or there. You know, he would argue never intentionally, but uh, he took care of her here, I'm sure. But how did Scott feel about doing it? Did you guys have to sell her on it? I mean, she really wasn't brought in to be a wrestler. No, she wasn't, but Stacy was a, she was a player and she was willing to go with it. And she trusted Scott. And I, I will go on, you know, and say, I do believe Scott Steiner when he said, yeah, they may have hurt people, but never intentionally. Um, Scott's sort of all over the places. We're winding up the career here on, on October 6th, he gets a win over Spike Dudley. Uh, he actually loses to Rob Van Dam a week later on October 13th. RVD got a couple more wins over Steiner as well. And then we see Booker T teaming with Maven to beat Scott and Jericho on house shows. On Raw, though, Scott and Jericho would get the win over RVD and Lance Storm. And then we do a series of elimination matches with Rob Van Dam, Booker T, and the Dudleys beating Scott Steiner, Mark Henry, Chris Jericho, and Christian. We get to Survivor Series here, and we'll see that Scott is on Team Bischoff. And he's teaming with Randy Orton, Mark Henry, Chris Jericho, and Christian to take on Team Austin, which is Shawn Michaels, Rob Van Dam, Booker T, and the Dudleys. I'm sure we're going to cover this pay-per-view at some point in the future long form. But the gist here is if Austin's team wins, he gets the restriction taken off of him that he can't touch anyone unless provoked. And Bischoff's team, if they win, Austin has to step down as the co-GM of Raw. In the match, Scott didn't eliminate anybody, and he is eliminated by Booker T. Randy Orton goes on to win the match. Any memories of this storyline and this whole Austin Bischoff co GM thing? Can you say convoluted? Yeah, there's a lot of shit going on here, but I really enjoyed Bischoff and Austin. I felt like they had a natural chemistry. It would no, and Austin and Eric, those two together, it was during time, you know, Steve one doing stuff in the ring and they had, they had chemistry. So it, it worked and it was a lot of fun. It was like Steve and Kurt Angle back in the day or Steve and Vince where 
we didn't have we had a general outline of what the hell we were going to do but i just left it up to the talent and we would just have fun with the shit and move on from there so but it was just good god sometimes with steve things could be so convoluted because vince would add in a stipulation on top of a stipulation on top of this on top of that to protect steve November 17th on Raw, the Dudleys beat Scott and Test. Um, in Detroit, a few days later, Devon and Hurricane would team up to beat Scott and Test. The following week on Raw, there's a Singapore Kane match where Scott and Test beat RVD. And then we get to Armageddon 2003. It's the World Tag Team titles. This is Tag Team Turmoil, and we would see Steiner and Test be eliminated by the Dudleys. Flair and Batista wind up winning the match and the tag titles. And on Raw December 1st, Mick Foley fires Scott and Test, and he's firing them because they're mistreating Stacy. Of course, once upon a time, it was just Test that was mistreating her, but now it's both of them. So Foley fires them both, and now Stacy is free from being their manager. Uh, on December 29th, RVD beats Scott, and after the match, Austin comes down and keeps asking Steiner to hit him. He finally did, which means Austin was provoked, and he got up and beat Steiner. Austin then stunned Stacy. Because she didn't like his beer. What's up with all the beatdowns on Stacy? Did she piss somebody off in the office? It feels like she's taking stunners and, um, you, you know, the whole stuff with the Dudley boys. We know how that went. We got a belly to belly suplex. Did Stacy have heat? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, she, she was enjoying it at this time. And I guess, she, you know, she was enjoying bumping. She was enjoying all of this mistreatment. Oh, wow. As you read this, as, you, as you're reading this, I'm like just going, oh, my God, how the hell did we get away with the things that we got away with? It wouldn't fly today um, and at should, all. And it, and it shouldn't have flown back down. It just is what it is. Um, there's been lots of rumor and innuendo about Stacy that she sort of uh, made her way up the ladder. Well, you know. Can you confirm or deny any of those allegations? What do you mean? Allegations of what? That she dated test? That she slept her way to the top. Lots of guys uh, in WCW felt like she was trying to do that, and maybe that continued in the WWE. And I haven't heard that from one person. I've heard it from multiples, but I've never actually heard it from someone who I felt like didn't have sour grapes. And to the best of my knowledge, you never got them guts. Chat me up. No. Did Stacy sleep her way to the top? I don't think. God, no. Think about, I mean, if you're going to sleep your way to the top, are you going to start with David Flair and Test? Well, I don't, I don't know who she was with behind the scenes. I know that Sonny was at the top, and she didn't get there fucking Chris Candido. Well, I'm just I'm just saying that, uh, no, I never heard, you know, I know Stacy dated Test for a long time. Um, I'm not asking about who she dated. No. Okay. Um, let's fast forward because there's not a lot left in Scott Steiner's career here with the WWE. He works a couple of matches uh, that are six men. We would see Storm, Spike, and Venus beat Scott Test and Christian. On Heat, he got another win over Stevie Richards. In Des Moines, the Dudley Boys beat Scott Test and Christian. They do a tables match in Madison where, of course, the Dudley Boys beat Scott and Test. In Milwaukee, Spike and the Hurricane beat Scott and Test. And then on Raw, on January 21st, Goldberg beat Scott and Test in a triple threat match. And that leads us to Royal Rumble 2004. It's January 25th in Philadelphia. 
Scott is in the Rumble match. He comes in at number eight. He doesn't eliminate anyone, and he's thrown out by Booker T. And this is Scott's last match in the WWE. He's sidelined for many months with a leg and or groin injury. What do you remember about this injury and his last match in the company? I believe it was a groin injury, first of all, and he was going to be out for a while. But this is where the catch-22 comes in. What do you have for Scott Steiner? God, you know, I don't know what the hell he can do. Okay, so if you don't know what he can do, how are we supposed to come up with something for him? There was just a lack of confidence on Vince's part. I think there was a lack of confidence in talent relations part as far as him holding up on the road. So what the hell do you do? There are really no more uh, talking roles for him, and that's not what he was brought in to do. So the feeling of him not being able to perform and breaking down, and maybe this was just his last run, the discussion of finally, you know, Fisher cut bait, we had to cut bait and say, okay, Vince, you know, everything that we've pitched, you don't want to do because you don't have confidence in him. If you don't have confidence in him, then cut him loose. Stop telling us to waste our time coming up with stuff. And the decision was finally made. You know what? Um, let's go ahead and cut him loose and let him do his own thing. On May 16th, the uh, figure four would report that Scott was cleared to wrestle, but he wouldn't be brought back to TV because creative had nothing for him. Um, they reported this in May. Do you remember when you guys actually said, Hey, we don't have anything for you. Yeah. When we had, when we had that discussion with Vince, once he was cleared, uh, and if he was, if he was cleared in May, then that's probably when that discussion take took place because when he was out, and for a groin injury, a lot of times you just don't know, man. Sometimes they take a while. It could take three weeks. It could take three months. And we have to wait till they're cleared. Once they're cleared, out of sight, out of mind, come up with something. We don't have anything. How does Vince, t- I mean, how does uh, Scott take that news? I didn't give it to him, and I didn't talk to him afterwards about it, but uh, I I I would venture to guess that, man, he was probably relieved because I don't think the run is something that he was proud of and something that he could look back fondly on. It, it was a tough it was a tough run for him. And coming in, he wasn't the Scott Steiner of old, and probably for him it was probably a relief to get off the road. The rumor in innuendo is that the actual release doesn't go down until August. So when he's on the sidelines – from, say, January to either May or August, depending on what you believe. Is he just getting a weekly check for his downside guarantee just to rehab? Yeah, probably so. Yeah, they're taking care of him during that time. It's an interesting end to uh, a pretty spectacular performer. Of course, though, we should mention um, you had an opportunity to work with Scott and TNA, and I want to touch on that briefly, but before we do, now that we've kind of put a bow on his WWE career here, what do you think of Scott's run? How would you describe it? His last run at WWE? Yeah. Absolutely terrible. Very disappointing. And and it was sad that somebody with all that athletic ability and the talent of a Scott Steiner, that that was the way that that, that run could have ended just so much differently for him. And I think if he had – and I don't know it's necessarily his fault that he wasn't in shape. I just think he had injuries 
that he didn't realize how much they were going to hamper him in that environment. I, I still think he's one of those what-if scenarios where the timing of everything, you know, if that guy would have been in that Lex Luger spot in 93, the business may be forever different, don't you think? Yes, I do. I do. And, yeah, it, it would have been a lot different. Imagine an Attitude Era Scott Steiner, you know, in early 98 with DX running around and Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker and Stone Cold and The Rock. Holy shit. That just would have been unbelievable. Of course, it wasn't to be. You worked with him again, though, in TNA. And, uh, we, of course, we've got a couple episodes on TNA in the archives. And an episode uh, one of our TNA duo is still one of the most downloaded shows in wrestling podcast history. Go check it out. Chat me up about Scott Steiner and TNA. What was your relationship like there? How was he to work with? Uh, give us some good, some bad, some ugly, some rumors, some innuendo. What can you tell us about Scott and TNA? You know, it was short-lived when I had come in um, and right about the time Terry Taylor was leaving and I was coming in on talent relations side, Vince Russo had this idea and they had written all their TV around bringing back the main event mafia and bringing back the main event mafia. They were going to do this whole thing with Flair's group. I even forget what the hell they were called, but it had AJ Styles and Bobby Roode and everybody that's up in WWF now. So they, I guess uh, Terry had contacted Scott Steiner, had Scott coming in. They had contacted uh, Kevin Nash and Booker, and they're doing all of this stuff contingent on these guys said, um, according to Booker, he never agreed that he was going to come in. According to Nash, he didn't agree that he was coming in. But Russo continued to, I guess, write and do everything as if they were coming in. The only guy that came back was Steiner. And when he came back and, and Booker and uh Kevin Nash didn't, Russo was left with, what the hell do I do with Steiner now? Now I've got Steiner. And he just, he wrote some things for Scott. Dixie would not allow me to put Scott Steiner under contract. He had a had a nightly deal. That's the only way that she wanted to do anything with Scott. Um, never was explained to me why. Thought, well hell, you know, if we're if we're gonna bring him in, we're gonna put him on TV, we're gonna invest anything in him, I'd like to know how long I have him for. And Scott wanted a, a contract. But I was never able to give him one. I was only able to give him nightly deals. And he was unhappy with that. And then at the end of it, when we were getting ready to do something with James Storm, Scott didn't want to do the match with James Storm. And Eric and I were standing there, and Eric said, okay, well, then we don't have anything for you. And Scott left, and that was the end of it. But then, you know, of course, he went on Twitter and uh, a lot of ugly things, and I just think it was timing and uh, everything else. I'd never had a problem with Scott Steiner ever. Up until that one day, and it wasn't really a problem. You don't want to do it, don't do it. Great. Right. Right. Well, let's get to some uh, Facebook questions. Of course, next up, we've got uh, Edge next week on the show. And if you'd like to ask a question about Edge, man, jump on Facebook and ask. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Bruce, we're going to rapid fire these. Are you ready? Ready. Uh, Eric Cordaway wants to know, how scared were guys to take the Frankensteiner? Nothing scary at all about taking the Frankensteiner. Easy bump. 
all day long. I take it twice on Sunday. Tristan wants to know, did anyone ever complain about the Steiners taking liberties with them or being too stiff? Did it ever lead to a, uh, to a shoot fight? See, again, I think that's just rumor and innuendo. Their stuff was stiff. I heard they did take liberties from different people in WCW. Never experienced that in WWF, to my knowledge. Evan wants to know, was Rick ever looked at by the WWE for a singles run in the late 80s before Scott came into the picture? Physique-wise, he looked like a guy Vince would have liked. No, he was not. John Collins wants to know, Bruce, which iteration of Scott Steiner did you prefer? Man, I loved... Well, I love Big Papa Pump. I love the the very initial turn of Big Papa Pump, but I I really loved when Scott Steiner blew up uh, as the Steiner Brothers in WCW. That was the guy I liked. In a legit fight, Ming and Barbarian or the Steiner Brothers? Hmm, that'd be ugly. <laughs> I think it'd be a double KO. Road Warriors or Steiners? Steiners. Aaron Massey wants to know, all brothers fight, contrary to Vince's thought. Did they fight at all about matches or anything? No, man. They, you know, again, like I said uh, earlier, Scott didn't didn't want to do a program with no, no, Rick because no, 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 no. he wanted to protect him. But, no, I know what you're saying. Uh, man, they pretty much got along for brothers, better than my brothers and I get along. Corey wants to know, who would Bruce say was stronger, Scott or Luger? Is that a real question? Uh, according to uh, Corey Craig, it is. Scott. Doug wants to know, am I the only one who thinks the old WWF tag team belts were the best-looking championships they had at the time? You're the only one. Tyson wants to know, was Steiner Austin ever discussed for WrestleMania 19? No, sir, it was not. David Trader wants to know, were they bullies like wrestlers in shoot interviews say about them, and did they have any heat with the locker room or other talent in the WWE? So I know we've talked about this a lot, but were there any guys like a top guy, like a Steve Austin, who says, I don't want to work with them? No. Okay. And Steve Austin Steve Austin actually you know, liked Scott, and they were friendly. Absolutely not. Uh, Rob wants to know, who would you take in a shoot fight, uh, Rick or Scott? I'd take Rick. Uh, Joseph wants to know, is it true that Vince banned Scott from using the Steiner screwdriver move during their tag team run? And if so, did Vince flip his wig whenever he would still occasionally use it? Was that the one where he dropped him on their heads? Yes. Yes, Vince did not like that. I encourage everybody, if you're not sure exactly what we're talking about here, throw in your Google machine, Steiner screwdriver, and uh, one of your first returns is probably a Scott Steiner screwdriver compilation. Woo! Dude's getting dropped on their heads left and right there. Um, Andy wants to know, I asked this on the post that they won, so I'll post it here. Are college fight songs public domain, or does Vince have to pay when they're used as entrance music? Most of them are public domain, so they're yeah, they're free. Uh, Christopher wants to know, was there ever any talk of them coming in as a heel team with a manager? No, sir. Babyface all the way. Here's a fun question from Andy. Uh, were the Steiner's mom and sister expecting to talk to Todd Pettengill at SummerSlam? This is sort of an interesting question because you may not remember, but at some point when Todd shoves the mic in their face, they start using their real names, and she refers to Rick Steiner as Rob. <laughs> yes, they knew that they were going to be talking. Uh, but, again, that to me, that's the beauty of live television. And, 
that have uh, to this, like I said, man, to this day, I still refer to, to Rick Steiner as Rob. Uh, Zach wants to know what did Vince think about the nickname, the Big Booty Daddy and Freakzilla? Mm, big Booty Daddy, Big Booby Baby. I love it. And you can get freaky in the Zilla. I, you know what? I, I, he liked it. He likes that kind of shit, that over the top stuff. Real question. Great question here from Adam. Do you think the Steiners would have challenged for the WWF tag team titles at WrestleMania 9 if Hulk Hogan hadn't come back? Yes. I mean, yeah. That's, once again, brother. Um, Thomas wants to know, how are the, no, whatever I asked that. Andre wants to know, who cut more unintelligible promos in their prime, Scott Steiner or Ahmed Johnson? Okay, unintelligible was Ahmed, more entertaining was Scott Steiner. JP says, I've heard Scott has gotten physical with fans. Did you ever see that? I've seen tapes of it. I just think it's silly to, <laughs> to get physical with fans. Well, that's crazy, man. Yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen video of it. Uh, Carl wants to know, who did the Steiner show more respect to than you expected, and who are they disrespectful with that maybe took you by surprise? See, and again, that's all just a narrative to me, rumor and innuendo, because I thought they were always pretty damn respectful guys and very professional. Well, but you do hear stories about there's certain guys who were really fans or appreciative or respectful or whatever of one guy or another. Do you remember the Steiners going out of their way to be like, oh, Mr. Undertaker? That's a bad example, but you know what I mean. Maybe some of the old legends from before. Okay, yes, yes. Uh, I'll give you two. When you say legends, that just peaked it. Alpha, they were very respectful to. Albano, they were not. Okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> this is pretty funny. Uh, Steven wants to know, what exactly is a big, bad booty daddy? And he's big and he's bad. <laughs> Can you explain that one to me? I don't know. I, see, because to me, a big bad booty daddy would be somebody with a big ass. Oh, no. See, I, I take it the other way. It's a big badass who likes a lady with a big booty. And wants to be her daddy? There you go. Hypothetically, how would JR describe uh, the big booty daddy character? Oh, uh, Scott Steiner, the, the, the big bad booty daddy. I, I, I don't know what, what, uh, if he wants to be, uh, if he just likes the booty or if he just wants to be somebody's daddy. But I'll tell you one thing, folks. He, he's big and he's bad. Huh? Sassafras. Uh, Brian wants to know, were the Steiners the most athletic tag team of all time? And are they in your all time top five? They are in, in, I'm going to put them up there in the top five. Yeah. They are without a doubt one of the most physical fucking tag teams I've ever seen. Luke wants to know, did Bruce ever see shades of Big Papa Pump in the early Scott Steiner days? No, I didn't. That's why I was so shocked. It was such a great, just a whole 180 for him. It was, it was excellent. The rumor in innuendo, according to Tom, is that you guys had an issue finding enhancement talent who could take the Steiner's offense safely to the point where Mike Enos would sometimes work under a hood just so he could do the Frankensteiner. Any truth to that? No, but I know we used to have Mike Enos work work under a hood to take you know to do things and go out and work twice. Yeah, because he was a good worker. Corey wants to know why did the WWF use the Steiner theme for Alex Porto two years later? 
Probably no one remembered it. I don't remember that. Andrew wants to know, is Scott Steiner legit crazy or is it all the work? I think Scott's a little legit crazy, but I think deep down he's a decent person. Marcus wants to know, in their prime, who was a better worker, Rick or Scott? They were both so great in their own way. I think the bigger star power was Scott. Dick wants to know, how absolutely badass would it have been to have a prime Steiner brothers in the current era? Right now? Yeah. But they, they, if you had the Steiners from, uh, the nine, early nineties, right now in WWE, they could main event in WrestleMania with that kind of shit. So there you go. Uh, there is your, uh, Steiner Brothers episode. You know, we've talked about his run and, and how you classified it overall. And you sort of alluded to it a minute ago. Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, the Steiner Brothers, top five all time for you? Yes. Do you think the WWF missed more on them as a tag team than anybody else? Like you think about the Legion of Doom and their run and demolition and, but it, you know, you had the Steiner brothers seemingly in their prime and it wasn't as big of a splash as maybe it could have been. Are they the biggest miss at tag team for the company? I don't know if they're a big miss. I think it was a, that all, like you say, comes back to timing. It was the era that they were there. And I think they got everything. I think we got everything that we could out of them at the time. But I think that there was a shitload more that we could have gotten out of them had it been a different time and a little bit longer run. Um, What do you think their legacy will be? Do you think they wind up in the Hall of Fame? I would hope so. I, I, I think both those guys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, tremendous athletes, and they definitely contributed to the sport. Given the way that, you know, Triple H has made those say, or Steiner has made those statements about Triple H, you know, oh, come pick me up in the limo and we'll go steroid test together. And then he's really come out really hard against Hulk Hogan to the point that maybe there was an incident in New Orleans at the airport with Steiner and Hogan's wife. And maybe his picture was up in the back and he was not allowed or welcome at that Hall of Fame event. And then, of course, he had the outbursts on social media with TNA and everybody suing everybody. Do you see a scenario where Scott Steiner is welcomed back into the WWE for a Hall of Fame and given a live mic? Or is some of that just him working? Well, let, let's, you know, let's look at history. Ultimate Warrior. If you go back and look at Ultimate Warriors YouTube videos and everything else, uh, worse than Scott Steiner. Bill Watts. If you go back and you still read Bill Watts' uh, webpage to this day, I don't know how, you know, that could be. Ultimate Warrior. I said Ultimate Warrior. Um, you know, Road Dog, who did all these shoot videos and, and different things and interviews talking about things. I think time heals right. all wounds. Right. And I think that. Business and, and people get over all that personal, petty, animosity bullshit. And I, I believe that most people are good deep down. And if you look at someone's, if you're only looking at it as their contribution to the business and that's how you're going to judge it, then, yes, they deserve to be in. And I think that there's going to be a time where people can get over all of that. Um, did anybody think that Eric Bischoff would be in the WWE, uh, there's so many on down the line as you, as you go through that list of people in the Hall of Fame. 
Damn. Yeah, I think it'll happen. So there you go, boys and girls. There's your Steiner Brothers episode. Go like us on Facebook if you haven't already. Ask a question about Edge and vote in our poll. It's one of our best polls in a long time, at least in my worldview. You've got China. You've got Goldust. The British Bulldog is there. And, of course, the Big Boss Man. And we're going to cover whichever one you like. And that episode is coming to you on the 22nd of December. Go vote right now. The poll is live. Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Ask a question about Edge. Check out the Morning Deuce with Bruce. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Hey, did I tell you that I'm playing the uh, the old WCW horrible version of the theme music at the end of the show? No. Yeah, it's that. Stand around. Right. Michael Hayes? That's Michael yeah. Hayes. Yeah, right. Saturday night, Saturday night, Saturday Yeah, old dude himself coming up right at the end of the show. Did you say Bruce Pritchard yet? No, should I do it now? In three, four, five, Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.